This episode is sponsored by GovX, a company I've used for several years now and wish I'd used for even longer. If you are a member of police, fire, EMS, corrections, nursing, a hospital setting doctor, and members of the military, and you are not registered with GovX, you are simply wasting your money. A free registration with GovX marries you with a multitude of companies that are offering our professions discount. So by registering at govx.com for free, you will then have a lifetime membership and you can shop for the very same things and save money. I've saved a huge amount of money buying sunglasses, I've bought knives, I've bought clothes, and even concert tickets on there. Another area I love about this company is GovX Gives Back, where they will raise money for different foundations every single month. And with this being September, they have a 9-11 memorial patch that raises money for firefighter aid. So if you're active duty, if you are retired, or if you're a volunteer, you are eligible for this membership. And on top of the savings that you will get by being a member, GovX is reaching out to you, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, to offer you an extra discount. If you spend 50, that's five zero dollars on your first order and use the code SHIELD, S-H-I-E-L-D, you will save an additional $15. So $15 off your first order of $50. So visit govx.com, G-O-V-X.com, register, and then be a member for life and continue to save over and over again. This episode is sponsored by 511, a company I've used personally for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 511 wants to reach out to you, the audience, and offer you a discount, which I will get to in a moment. As with each episode, I want to highlight one of their products. And I think an area that really needs to be discussed is uniforms. So most of us listening to this podcast are in some sort of uniform profession. And 511 were founded on clothing the tactical athletes. So they went to the member of military, the police officer, the firefighter, the EMT, and asked them what do they need to function at the highest level when it comes to their clothing. So their uniforms are reverse engineered from the user back to the manufacturer. Another observation I've made in several departments I've worked at is that we end up with lockers full of worn, faded uniforms. And what I found with the 511 uniform that I wore in California was that wasn't the case. They lasted several years and some of the job shirts and jackets lasted way longer than that. So longevity and cost efficiency is also another element to this as well. Yet another layer to this is the female tactical athlete. So they realized that men and women, surprise, surprise, are not shaped the same way. So they started designing uniforms accordingly to fit the female tactical athlete and allow her to be able to move efficiently. So, so many reasons why I advocate this company. On top of all their other great products, the Norris sneaker, which I think is a great alternative to a station boot, the AMP pack or missions backpack, and then their civilian clothes as well, their shorts, their jeans, so, so comfortable, so user-friendly as well. So, 511 are offering you a discount of 15% off all of your purchases. So, use the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5 at 511tactical.com. That's 511tactical.com. And to hear even more about 511, their mission, their products, and their genesis, listen to my interview with their CEO and co-founder, Francisco Morales, on episode 338 of this podcast. Welcome to episode 354 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Sergeant Major Sebastian Lavoie. Now, aside from being one of the highest ranks in the Royal Mounted Police in Canada on the Western Province, 
Sebastian is also a use of force subject matter expert and a high level tactical athlete himself. So as you will hear, we unpack so many topics that appear to be plaguing us at the moment, whether it's use of force, whether it's physical standard, annual testing, mental health, jujitsu, and so many other areas. Before we get to that conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast and make it more visible for people that need to find it. And remember, this is a free library for you, the audience, anywhere on planet Earth. So all I ask is that you help pay it forward and share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person who needs to hear them. And as a side note, my book, One More Light... Life, Death, and Humanity Through the Eyes of a Firefighter is now available on Amazon around the world. So with that being said, I introduce to you Sergeant Major Sebastian Lavoie. Enjoy. So, Seb, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Where on planet Earth are we finding you today? <laughs> I'm about uh, 20 minutes uh, east of Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. Perfect. All right. So, starting at the very beginning, where were you born? And then tell me about your family dynamic, what your parents did, and how many siblings. Okay, <clears throat> so I was born uh, 43 years ago in Montreal, Montreal, Quebec, Canada, which is um, an urban center about 370 miles from uh, in direct line with New York City on the east coast of Canada. Um, my mom was a single mom. She was 15 at the time, very young. I have two sisters that came in much later in life. And I was mostly raised um, about 30 minutes north of Montreal uh, with mom, uh, just mom and I, basically. And this, that was kind of my family dynamics for the longest time. Didn't know my dad, never seen him, never met him. No idea where he is. Right. Maybe if, he, if he's listening now, it's time to step up. It's been long <laughs> enough. It, actually, it's too <laughs> late to step up. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't now. I've seen you. <laughs> Um, all right. Well, then, I mean, Montreal is a beautiful place. I used to work in the Adirondacks in upstate New York, and we'd drive up to Montreal on our days off sometimes. So it's a beautiful city. Absolutely. So clearly you are quite the tactical athlete these days. Were you a young sportsman when you were at school age? Not really. I mean, I wasn't to athletics, and I, will be, I would be doing the running and the climbing and the push-ups and the pull-ups, but I didn't really do any um, sort of organized uh, team sports. And I think <clears throat> part of this had to do with um, mom being a single mom and wanting me to be able to defend myself. So she opted for martial arts instead. So I started martial arts really, really young, and uh, I didn't really get to enjoy the, uh, the team sports. I, I did play them recreationally, you know, hockey, being from Montreal and those types of things, but um, nothing organized or serious. And what were the martial arts that you started in? I started in Wushu, which is a Chinese boxing, and uh, I know a bunch of people will laugh now, but, uh, you know, at the time, 
<laughs> this was pre-UFC, so we thought that stuff worked. <laughs> uh, and, and, I, and I'm kidding, I, I, because there was a lot of positives in me starting in, the, in traditional martial arts uh, in Wushu, and, and I have no regrets for having done so. But yeah, it was, uh, it was great, and I slowly evolved into other things. Um, including Muay Thai, and I did some karate in be, in between there as well, and moved into Muay Thai eventually, and grappling later in life. Oh, well, let, let me ask you something because I I started in um, let me see WTF Taekwondo, kick and keep your hands down, and then Shotokan, and then ITF Taekwondo, and then boxing, and then kickboxing, and every single time I went to a new one, especially from the the karate Taekwondo area to boxing and kickboxing it was a rude awakening on the good things of my art but definitely a lot of the the bad things of my art coming from wushu which is a great art i I do stunts on the side it's a beautiful art for for tv and screen and and live action um did you have any kind of humbling moments when you took your skills to a different discipline that maybe would be a little little harder version of my life has been one big humbling experience. <laughs> <laughs> Mine too. But um, but but yeah, I I certainly did. Um, I did have some rude awakening. I I think what it came down to ultimately is having an open mind, and and be willing to suck to suck at something new, um, and and put the time in and try to get it better, while maintaining the positives of whatever it is that you achieved in the previous art or you know and it could be obviously applicable to anything else in life but i think that's what my attitude was so i never really had an issue with that it was but it was um certainly uh, the case right yeah and it's, it's interesting you say that because i've talked about this a couple of times changing your mind seems to be frowned upon in a lot of areas of society at the moment you know politicians are called wishy-washy and you know people are attacked oh and you know 2006 you said this and now you're changing your mind i think that's a very important thing to be able to do like you said absorb what is useful discard what is useless you know there's a time where we were taught certain ways of eating and working out when we were young that now we look back and go that really wasn't right for a tactical athlete for example so i think it's very important that people to to understand it's okay to say you know either it didn't work for me or it was completely wrong but that was then this is now and i'm gonna i'm gonna adapt and overcome yeah, I couldn't agree more. If you if 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 one hasn't changed their mind, uh, I'm seriously concerned with the amount of reassessment and the amount of research that went into <laughs> the follow up to whatever it is that their field of endeavor was. Um, everything evolved. Everything does. And if and if you're in, if you are entrenched uh, in your way of doing things, you're definitely not going forward. Absolutely. Well, then, what about career aspirations? When you were at school, what did you want to be? I mostly wanted to be a, a police officer. I wanted to be a cop since I was very, very young. I, I remember as early as six or seven for sure. And um, and there's probably a, a whole bunch of contributing factors to that. But, um, but, but yeah, I was very young, so I've never really changed my mind. Right. So walk me through from graduating to the next, you know, what was the first career that you actually found yourself in? Uh, wow. I wish I had my CV in front of me because there was quite a few sort of jumped here and there. I believe after graduation, I ended up doing a close protection course, um, which was ironically very similar to the close protection courses that we take in our organization today. Um, 
I did a close protection course. I was one of the youngest graduate uh, of that course uh, ever at the time, 18. I'm sure, I'm sure um, somebody has graduated at 18 since because it's been, I don't know, 20 years plus. But um, but that was my sort of my first um, professional endeavor. So I did close protection for some time. I joined the military a little bit later, um, uh, did very little in the military. I'm not a veteran uh, by any stretch of the imagination. I am not a combat vet. It was in the dark ages of the military. Um, but I did do my uh, basic training, my battle school, and additional courses, and I stayed in for three and a half years until the RCMP hired me. Um, there was a few other jobs in between. And I worked at armored cars, and there was a variety of other security-oriented jobs. Uh, I was a bouncer for quite some time, three or four years uh, in, in the clubs. You know, And for people that are not or don't know about Montreal, it was the mecca for... Um, the Hells Angels and the Rock Machine War uh, that was waged in the mid-90s. And um, it was a really, really bad time, a rough time to be a bouncer in the clubs, but it was also a very good uh, learning opportunity. And I, yeah, I finally did, did not renew my military contract and went on to um, to become um, part of the Royal Canadian Mount Police. Well, just to interject for a second, having the background in martial arts, I had Jeff Thompson on the show, who's a, a bouncer in England, um, and then, you know, had some realization with his martial arts training, what worked and what didn't. What were the lessons that you learned being a bouncer as far as the application of the arts that you'd learned up to that point? Well, it started with the realization that the best fight you can get into is the fight you're not getting into. That was realization number one. Realization number two um, was that there was a few key techniques that I seemed to be using over and over again. So if the even though I had a broad spectrum of techniques that I that I could draw upon if needed, I felt like I was always using the same four or fives, you know, like whether it was a straight arm bar or, you know, whatever the case may be, um, I, just, I just stuck to what worked and it worked 90% of the time type deal. So that was very enlightening. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that's it. When you watch the UFC, usually... The finishes are, are, like you were saying, one of a few strikes or one of a few kicks or one of a few submissions. And even though you see this amazing wizardry in the sport BJJ world, the reality is in, you know, in the MMA world, which is still not obviously the bouncer world by any means, but there seems to be a, uh, you know, a reliance on simple and effective techniques. Yeah. And, you know, now looking back now and understanding the 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 physiological and psychological implications of the use of force and the high stress situation i understand you know when it goes from the frontal cortex to the monkey brain so to speak um complex techniques are are kind of going out the windows like it's it's more of a approach but if you have a good base there and there's some stress inoculation over time uh, you can actually apply some pretty effective techniques and we're seeing that at the high level of BJJ competition as well, right? Keeping games very, very simple. Absolutely. All right. Well, then tell me about your, your entry into the Mounted Police. So the journey in the, in the RCMP started in 2000. So I went for training in 2000. I graduated. Uh, so our training is in uh, Regina, Saskatchewan, um, a, a, a city uh, in the mid in the sort of middle um, in the prairies in Canada that's about uh, 120 degrees in the summer and um, and uh, 30 degrees <laughs> in the winter it's uh, 
it's it's pretty extreme pretty extreme conditions there but uh, our training is six months of basic training or 22 weeks at the time and um and yeah i graduated in march of 2001 and uh was shipped to tofino british columbia Right. So tell me about the, the entry standards. This was 20 years ago now. Kind of what were the, the hiring standards and then, you know, what did your academy actually look like? Did they, did they set the bar high in your training? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yes. Um, yes to both. Uh, the, the, especially so there is a bit of disparity depending where you are in the country. So there at the time, Quebec, um, has its own provincial police. So the way it works is Quebec and Ontario both have their own provincial police. And the rest of the country, uh, the provincial police is is the RCMP. So the opportunities to join the RCMP in other provinces, um, by way of numbers alone, are better. Uh, being in Quebec uh, made it uh, very difficult, and it's very competitive. They would only take a very uh, small amount every year from Quebec. With that. Um, I was French speaking and the troop was going to be a French troop that I was going to be on. And that also limited um, sort of the opportunities for people from Quebec. So, um, you know, the, the standards were the same as everywhere else. It was entry exam followed by a package that would be put in. Uh, then there would be the, the physical testing. And I may mix up the order a little bit here, but there would be the physical testing. Uh, then there would be the medicals, the interviews. Uh, my interview was about six hours long. Uh, my entry interview was it was excellent, but it was uh, you know a solid interview. Um, then there was a security clearance and, and all the you know the regular sort of uh, obtaining a security clearance and 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 going out to training. Then there's a, evidently the training that has to be passed six months uh, benchmarks obviously on everything from driving to police defensive tactics to to police science to uh, law and criminology and 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 uh, and the uh, you know um what else was there yeah i mean the the, the hands and feet skills uh, essentially of uh, of of police officers uh, pretty much everywhere 6 months is or 22 weeks is the training program um, in, uh, in Saskatchewan, I don't know if it's a little bit different now, if it's a little longer or, but, uh, lots of physical, lots and lots of physical stuff, lots of fun runs, lots of PT, lots of, of police defensive tactics. And, and you have access to all the facilities and the driving track and everything. So if, if there are areas where <clears throat> you are either lacking or if there are areas where you need some extra work, work then it's incumbent incumbent upon you to sort of go out there and 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 use the facilities and and use the people around you and train as much as you possibly can which is exactly what i did because i knew some things may cause uh, challenges may pose challenges for me but that if i was willing to be the hardest worker in the room i was going to get through with no problem so and uh and that's essentially what happened it went really well so having been through a pretty thorough process with the Mounties and then now 20 years of your career seeing police officers from all over the world, hearing about different um, hiring practices and, and academies, what are some of your observations of the the do's and don'ts for exactly that hiring practices and um, you know setting the bar high? 
Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, there's no question that recruiting for police forces um, and, and uh, notwithstanding where in the world um, is critical. It's the angular stone of where your law enforcement agency is going to go. It also um, is directly correlated to the amount of, um, you know, code of conduct issues that you are going to have, uh, internals. Um, there's a variety of, of everything's impacted by lowering the standard. So there's a few things that I've seen over the years, um, you know, not necessarily in my organization, but in various organizations. And oftentimes the pressure comes from trying to reach numbers, right? So it is very difficult to run a very thorough um, selection process and, and, and make sure that you you have top-notch candidates at every step of the way when you have uh, challenges with filling positions and having the numbers. And, you know, I, I can only, I can speak for my organization, but I know that New York City, for instance, has, I think, 5,000 members more than we have an, as an organization nationally. So I can only imagine uh, some of the challenges that are, um, you know, associated with that. So quality quantity is quality over quantity is critical uh, bearing in mind that obviously the, the numbers have to be there so it has to be reasonable and achievable standard and it has to be as long as you have people that can that can learn uh, you know you're generally in good standing one of the other issues that I've seen over the years aside from the uh, perhaps um, having or taking out certain critical parts of the of the selection process, the recruiting process, is there are some organizations where uh, recruiting is often seen as a, I, I don't want to call it a, a, a punishment because it isn't, but there's a lot of organizations where, well, if we don't know, if we, we're having an issue with a certain person or we don't... Um, they, they, you know, they weren't performing up to par or, or whatever. Let's, let's send them to recruit. Now, this was, it certainly occurred, um, organizationally for us many, many years ago. If it's absolutely not the case now, because I think there was a realization this just couldn't happen. Um, it has, it is absolutely critical that the people that are sort of gatekeeping for the rest of your organization are, of diverse backgrounds, but they're competent police officers that can and and human beings that have that have you know have had some life experiences that can draw upon those to reach out and touch people the good quality people in the many different demographics and very you know many different um, walks of life type deal. So, two things: stack your recruiting with the people that you want to be gatekeeping for the rest of the organization. That's a, that's a service for the community that you have sworn to protect, but it's also a service for your membership in the field to make sure that you can uphold standards and you can have the right people in the right jobs. And then make sure that the steps of recruiting are consistent with operational policing. So you don't end up making it an administrative process and, and not necessarily recruiting people um, well-suited for operational policing, if that makes any sense. No, it does completely. And it's two very, very valid points. I think not even 
just recruitment that that I see a lot of times in several places I've worked. The training department is the kind of punishment or, you know, the, the kind of problem child kids sometimes are sent there. And that's the worst, <laughs> the worst place to put the people that aren't the go-getters is training. Because now when these young men and women come in, and those are the people that are holding themselves against. They're like, okay, well, that's that's what I need to be. This is the best of the best. So if you're not putting some great people in recruitment and training, then you're setting yourself up for failure for the rest of their career. Yep, absolutely. It is. Um, and I mean, I've seen it over the course of, of, of my time uh, on, a, on, a, on a tactical unit where I was I was a part of 22 selection camps over the years, over 12 years that I spent on the team, 22 selection camps. And we had, um, you know, 68 operators and, 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 and the, the level of problems that we have associated with, with these guys is absolutely asinine. It's so low for the amount of people we have, we should be generating statistically, we should be generating more issues, <laughs> you know, and having more performance issues and these types of things. But the selection is directly correlated to these high-performing teams that we can that we're able to put together and 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 deliver a super highly, um, su- super high-quality standard product and um, and and it's just in the long run you are way better to go quality over quantity even if it means running short at times and and you know uh, and making that up type deal. Yeah, well, exactly. And I've had this conversation with a couple of people. I truly believe that if you set the bar high, you will have the candidates. You will have people seeking you out because now you're a desirable department. Like you said, the tactical units, that's the pinnacle. That's who everyone wants to be. So now they're going to train. They're going to prepare with their academics. They're going to, you know, work on their weapon skills, work on, you know, whatever it is for whichever profession we're talking about. But this idea that you just open the floodgates because you need to fill seats is a horrendous in a in a profession where people's lives are at stake but b i think it's the wrong philosophy i think if you have a crucible like you said a sensible crucible but one that when you get out the other end there's a true sense of of um accomplishment there's a true sense of camaraderie with the group that you've just joined that is going to attract more good candidates than if you just say 18 in a heartbeat come on in oh yeah i couldn't agree more and uh and in the long run you'll have there will be less issues organizationally. There will be, I mean, the liability wise and, you know, it just is, is there's no denying that. So um, also with that, I think when the members in the field, they're already mass taxed doing the operational policing are now tasked with training the members that are coming out of training, uh, field training the members that are coming out of training rather, um, you know, having the right people there and not to say that there isn't going to be like personality conflict and such that's not an issue that's no problem you just switch you know trainer and 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 make that happen but uh we're you know that happens but uh but in terms of having good quality workable people that are capable of taking criticism and implementing um quality work ethic um i you know i think we owe that to the members in the field because they already are taking on so much yeah, absolutely. And then what about, um, so let's talk about training. So obviously right now we're seeing some isolated cases of, of either blatant, um, wrongful death at worst, maybe even murder, you know, with the George Floyd. And then we got some, you know, more gray areas that we see. 
these are a very small percentage of you know what men and women in uniform do all over the world every single day but one thing that comes up a lot in the fire service and you know in the EMS and police is a diminished level of training and a diminished le- level of annual requirements so for you you know with, with your high level uh, experience in law enforcement what are some of the elements you think that agencies in general should be doing better when it comes to weapons when it comes to defensive tactics so that we can increase the skills of our officers and therefore hopefully decrease some of these incidents where lives are lost that possibly could have been saved yes i you know i think that's probably a question that we could spend the rest of the afternoon on right it's a very complex and very intricate uh, sort of um concept like how do we how do we fix that and what are precisely what are exactly the problems that 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 we have but one thing that we do know um, empirically and historically is that police officers are being asked to do a job that's extremely critical and 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 life altering if not life ending and um, and they are provided very minimal training. So if you speak organizationally to most organizations, whether it's in Canada or the states, most officers would be shooting, you know, once a year, maybe twice a year. Um, you know, they will do uh, scenario-based training sometimes once every three years, sometimes once every two years. So those are all very perishable. And we're we're simply speaking hands and feet skills here. We're not even touching de-escalation. We're not touching uh, communication and and mental health and, you know, whatever the case may be. Um, There's a variety of different angles to make a complete police officers. But the bottom line is we are not training what we need to be looking at is is a complete revamp of the policing model in terms of instead of having a day shift and a night shift watch, maybe you have a day shift, a night shift, and a training shift. So every third block is a training block. Like there, there needs to be a substantial increase in an, in, a, in an understanding that training is critical to the job that the police officers are doing on the streets. And the challenges with that is to also have to communicate this outside to the stakeholders so that we're getting proper funding to do that. I know, you know, I understand how difficult it is. The key is policing in general has done an absolutely horrendous job of selling what we do to the public that we deserve. Most of them have no idea what we do. And what do we do? We we remain quiet. We say, well, you know, this is under investigation. That is under investigation. We can't really speak to this. This is uh, tradecraft or 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 tactics, and we can discuss this. And I totally disagree with that. Um, and 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 this those are evidently my opinion, and don't necessarily reflect the opinions of my organization. But my opinion is that we need to be a lot more transparent with the public so that they actually understand the challenges that we face on the daily. And we need to be keep those things coming, whether it's through social media or whatever the case may be. Once we've established what it is that we do and for people to go, wow, I didn't realize that. I didn't know this. Maybe have some open doors and have them come in, maybe put them through some use of force encounters and do some things, some simple things that they can, you know, experience a certain degree of and a fraction of what police officers on the road are actually experiencing and then we get some buy-in and once we have some buy-in it should come it should come at a cost and the cost is we need to change the way we do business we need to get those members training and they need to train think about any 
any special operation unit, whether it's a it's a it's a police um, SWAT unit or 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 uh, or a military soft unit or or anybody, the the amount of time that is spent dedicated for training often triples the amount of operational time. Well, we are a far cry from that, and a lot of those hands and feet skills are very relatable. So that's where we need to go, in my opinion. It just it needs to be a complete change in culture. Yeah, and I couldn't agree more. So I've had you know so many branches of special operation military men and women on here, and just like you said, you know, they spend months and months and months preparing for an operation. Obviously, it's a different dynamic. It's not completely apples to apples, but the importance in the training is you know completely front loaded like they're not going to go anywhere until they know they have all the tools all the tactics all the the skills the fitness the rest and recovery to enact what they're going to do now our situation in first responders is a little different but we have devolved to the point where the focus is just run the calls and we'll get to training you get to your online training you'll be fine it's an hour on on target solutions and then you get back on the street and just like you said, I mean, I love the idea of having three shifts and one of them being the training shift. It's insanity with law enforcement, with with the skills that you guys have to master. In fire in, in the U.S., we have the, the fire, you know, all the special operations skills and then the EMS skills as well. So a very, very diverse skill set. And there's no way in hell that you're going to stay on top of it unless you're training diligently. So... We have gone so far from that. Obviously, like you said, the budget side is an element. The fire service has done a terrible job at getting people to know what we do as well because we keep getting asked, why is there a fire engine on a on an EMS call? And in 2020, if you're still asking that, that means that we fucked up big time because, you know, we've been running EMS for 50 years now. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, I think that's absolutely right. It's not a single solution. It's got to be from the individual, from the department and from the taxpayer as well. Yeah, absolutely. And then and then what needs to happen is it needs to be made part of the culture, right, as an organization. So organizationally, and when you hire people, they need to understand, like, look, you will be spending a third of your time training. So there will be PT, physical training, there will be runs, there will be hands and feet skills, there will be reading and writing. And, you know, because we can't just speak to hands and feet skills. I mean, everybody out there, I mean, you know, high level interviewers and 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 investigators and there's a there's a broad uh, skill set there that's required from police officers and it is absolutely unreasonable to expect them to be comfortable and to be confident and and, and not feel the need to overcompensate um, you know to make up for a shortcoming which is created by organizations worldwide absolutely well i want to explore all the as you said, the hands and feet skills, the the, you know, the the fitness levels, the the armed and unarmed tactics. But firstly, you you said earlier about avoiding force in the first place. So the de-escalation element. So again, at, with your position, what are the f- principles and philosophies that you have on the importance of that, and then and then how you train that in the first place? Yeah, well, it starts very early. It starts with selection, right? So, so there are personality types that are just, um, you know, prone to certain actions. And, and it's not because you're a person of, and, and, you know, I'll quantify that by saying I, everybody loves somebody that can take care of themselves and somebody that when the time comes are there and, and ready to go. 
But what I don't like is somebody that's always ready to go. And every time they show up on a call, there's an escalation, right? I'd rather have somebody that's a little less ready to go, but at least a fight likely won't start in the first place. So um, I think we can bridge the gap there. It doesn't have to be one or the other. But um, I do believe that, you know, we, we as an organization have, well, organization organizationally we need to be providing the tools the hands and the hands and feet skills the combatives the combatives tool sorry man i totally forgot the question already uh, that's okay um i was i was talking about de-escalation so how what are your philosophies on it and then how how do we actually teach these officers to understand that and, and then ultimately become very good at de-escalation mm -hmm. okay so when it when it comes as it pertains to to de-escalation specifically I mean, you know, first first rule of anything, and when it comes to policing, is have people that can actually talk to people. Is that that really starts you off right? That sets you up for success, right? So what we have now is we have, and I'm not, um, you know, pointing fingers at any particular generation, but we are what we are seeing, and some of the challenges that we are seeing now, is with uh, the rise of. The, 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 the sort of electronic platforms like, you know, smartphones and, and, and whatnot, the text and how much people are actually not interacting in person. Um, we see some issues when people are, are being put in a position where they have to, to speak to people. And, you know, one rule of thumb I had uh, during my policing career and it still to this day is if it's good enough for, for my mom, it's good enough to be said. Right. And, and if I say it in a way, if if you are speaking to people the way you would like somebody to speak to your mom, you're doing it right. So, we're, you know, anything from actually actually having some mental health strategy or some of the some of the, you know, triggers and knowing and be able to identify some of the triggers, knowing and, and be able to identify some of the behaviors you're dealt with, perhaps having a little bit of understanding of so, some of the mental uh, conditions that are out there. And I mean. Um, our force organizationally has done a great job of, of, of creating um, uh, a, a crisis de-escalation course, which is very decent, uh, in, in my opinion. But it does just that. It you know teaches you uh, it teaches you to recognize certain key behaviors that are often associated with certain conditions, and those conditions are also in turn asso associated with some triggers and how to avoid those and what kind of of, uh, you know, sort of tone you should be using and what kind of nonverbal and be aware of your nonverbal, you know, standing there with your, with your hand on your pistol just doesn't cut it, right? It actually doesn't ever, but <laughs> it could be worse if there's a potential for, for, for escalation as well. So, uh, you know, and sometimes an escalation of tactics is required to de-escalate as well, but then the other element comes in, like do the do the members have the self confidence and the knowledge and the know the know how to to say go hands on with a certain levels of a certain level of stress inoculation, but a certainly a certain level of competence, so that there isn't an overreaction to you know something that could be benign, say you know like something that could be fixed with you know a, a, a wrist grab or, or or some arm bar of some sort or some you know. I, I'm just spitballing here, but you know, j just it, does it need to be? If there is a lack of confidence, if there is uh, fear as a result of not having the appropriate training, then the the the, the, the it's almost uh, inevitable that there will be some overcompensation. And if there is, then there's an escalation that perhaps 
just wasn't needed. So even if there is an escalation of tactics that's required to de-escalate a situation, if we provide proper training, um, you know, we can accomplish that without impacting um, the call too, too much, right? To the point where it goes completely pear-shaped. Yeah, well, exactly. And you touched on a very good point that I've observed. You know, I, I did um, Tim Kennedy's sheepdog response. As a civilian, they have a law enforcement version as well. I didn't attend that. I'm not a, I'm not a police officer myself. But just that two days, understanding the tools that you have, you know, becoming more confident at the... Uh, you know, the jujitsu side, even even the um, the firearm side too. But it really does kind of illustrate if you have confidence in your fitness, in your strength, in your, you know, jujitsu or whatever whatever martial art you're using to the point where you're not fist fighting someone, you know, you, like you said, you can restrain someone. Um, I think that then gives off an air of confidence and is probably a dissuader to someone to take advantage of you. Whereas the the converse, I think we see quite a bit, and you know, there are sadly very video, you know, many many videos out there where it's almost comical. These police officers trying to restrain a single person, and you can tell they a don't have fitness or strength, and b don't have any training because they're literally just making it up as they go along. So, what is your view again of the importance of strength, the importance of fitness, the importance of defensive tactics in the role of de-escalation, not even having to go hands-on? Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, <laughs> it's interesting. Uh, there, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of empirical evidence and a lot of even force science you know, uh, corroborated the fact that if there is a target selection that occurs there, when a, when a, when a police officers, um, and, and there are cases where there's straight ambushes and I don't care how much you train, if you are being um, if you are being ambushed, uh, you know you are behind, and 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 unless you regain momentum somehow, uh, it'll be a miracle if you come out alive. So those are completely different set of circumstances. But there are people that are being targeted because of, say, poor deportment, and we know that for a fact because assailants have been interviewed, and I've provided plenty of evidence to support that. Like, look, you know, I I was pulled over by this guy uh, or this girl. Boots were unlaced. There was no polish on there. The pants were all, you know, dangling or too big. The belt would look like a cowboy from the, you know, uh, from uh, the far west or or whatever. And uh, and the deportment, the way they spoke, it was, you know, they're just everything about that person screamed incompetence. I couldn't possibly. It was disrespectful to me to have somebody like this arrest me, you know. <laughs> And I and I laugh, and it certainly isn't funny. And you in the states have been hit harder than anybody else, and we have lost plenty. But if we were to compare the numbers, I mean, you know, the, the numbers in the states are absolutely astronomical. That how many members and how many police officers are being killed every year, and it's it's just absolutely shocking that still you see a certain a certain culture and people that are entrenched. And it's almost like, I call it the, um, the airplane safety lecture. You know, when, when you're, when you sitting on the plane and the, the flight attendant comes out and they talk about, you know, 
this and that and the other. Everybody's paying attention. Everybody's listening. As soon as they start talking about the possibility of crashing that plane and to grab the the, the card in the seat in front of you so that you can follow along for the safety procedures, what do everybody does? They put their, you know, their earphones in, they look out, everything. Humans don't like to be remembered that planes can crash. Well, they, they, while they live in denial like this, it doesn't change the fact that the plane can crash. So the challenge is, even though, say, in the U.S., there's an astronomical amount of, of police officers that are being killed, and we've experienced the same here, just on a, a, on a smaller scale, it's still very, very hard to convince individual police officers that they need to be doing those things on the regular. Because the day they need it, and this is a very low probability event attached to a very high set of consequences, those are the events that are the harder to get people to prepare for. Very, very low probability, very high consequences. And I think that's where, as org- organizationally, and I speak to all organizations, if it is implemented in a, a, an actual rotation, then that's just that. You have taken that out of being an option, if you will. You know, we leave it up, we leave it up to you to, to be fit. We leave it up to you to train on your days off. Well, you know, it just does not happen, right? Or it does for certain people, evidently, but, uh, but not for others. So how, how, do you, how do you fix that? Well, you fix that by, by, by providing it and, and, and running it. And, and you just make that a part of the job. And until we do that, we are going to continue to face the same challenges. You know, I just, it blows my mind. It's, it's the same when, when people say, you know, I, I, I was diagnosed with cancer and I, you know, I was shocked. Were you? One out of three people get diagnosed with cancer. You know, like, why not you, you special? You know, you're not. So, so it's the same. Like, one day will come where you will find yourself in a situation that you, it will be too late to wish that you had done this and done that. And, and, and you owe it to yourself, your family, and everybody else to have put everything you possibly could into preparing for that moment. So if you do get ambushed and something goes majorly pear shape and you don't make it back, at the very least, everybody who loved you, who will no longer get to see you, knew that you did everything you could to prevent that from happening. It just wasn't meant to be. I don't know if that makes any sense. Oh, it, may, it makes so much sense. And it's funny, when you were talking about that, there's a there's a very specific image that popped in my mind. One of my friends um, just posted a picture, and this was one of my... It just used to piss me off so much. But we have the SCBAs, the air tanks on our backs, and the the modern ones go up to 4,500 PSI in, in, in the US. It's the... Uh, the stat, the um, metric that we use, and the number of times in my career I'd go, especially in the last department, I'd go on, and it would be at like four thousand thirty eight hundred, <laughs> and I'd be like, "This is all the fucking air you have in the world inside a fire. Why would you not take the time to make sure it's completely full? You know, you you will literally die." And I've had people on here that got out of a fire only because they were diligent and they had that extra air so it's not a fallacy like you said it's it's um you know high consequence low probability but it's there so and it's something that you could control and it's the same to me with the training levels and with the health and you know the the strength and conditioning side too there is so much pushback from some people in some departments when it comes to this 
And like you said, why would you not control as many variables as you can to A, affect a rescue, that's why you put the badge on your chest in the first place, and then B, to make sure you go home to your family. And the, the detachment, the loss of connection to that philosophy blows my fucking mind. I just don't understand how you could sign up to be one of the professions that we're in and also have a complete disregard for your own or someone else's well-being. Yeah. And I, you know, I'll piggyback on that and even say, if, if you wish to endanger yourself, um, by all means, go ahead. I, I obviously don't want to see you hurt. But the problem is, is this is the public we have sworn to protect. And more importantly, and equally as important, rather, is, is the people that we work with. And, and I tell you, there, there are three ways to survive uh, an encounter. Physically, mentally, Actually, physically, legally, mentally, and emotionally, which are two of the same, you know, because they're intertwined. But just think of this from in terms of consequences and personal cost. The day that you are called upon to enact the things that you should have been doing and you don't because you cannot and it goes majorly wrong and somebody that you work with does not get to go home you also don't get to go home. You will never be the same person again. I don't care if you live, you know, essentially, essentially, um, you know, the toll that that will take on you, you will never recover from it. And, and, you know, you may be able to, but it's very unlikely. So it's having the ability to think outside the box and to truly not just do it on a cerebral level, but also on an emotional level. You know, humans are 90% emotions and, and we, use our, we use our brains to process information 10% of the time. But because it's conscious, we think we're majorly cerebral, but we're not. We're actually bundles of emotions. And, 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 and it's critically important that when we try to reinforce a messaging in our subconscious mind so that it becomes ingrained in us, we need to do it on an emotional level. Don't try to rationalize everything. Just sit there and think. Truly, you are now facing, you know, your partner's wife or husband. They have, they have, you know, been killed on duty. Your job was this. You tried your best, but you came up short because how does that feel? You know, and it's not about blame laying or anything like that, but it's about taking responsibility for our actions as people that have chosen this profession. And there is, and there is a, there is an, you know, a ton of people relying on us. We just cannot fail. And if we do fail, then we cannot fail for having failed to do what we needed to do to prevent failure. If that makes any sense. No, it does. And I talked about that before too. I mean, uh, that we have, you know, our professions, yours and mine, have. we're going to have multiple times where we're not able to save someone. And I think to me, the difference between mental health and mental ill health is if you have trained diligently, if you have taken it seriously, if you have done everything you can to be the best version of you as a fireman, as a police officer, whatever it is, then you're going to be able to walk away. It's still going to be a load, but you know in your heart of hearts they didn't die because of you. Whereas, and this is again another element of this that I don't understand when people don't take these jobs seriously, is if you didn't make it up that building and that family of kids died because you gassed out on the fifth floor, not only have you basically been responsible for their deaths, but now you're going to carry that the rest of your life. And like you said, you're not going to go home the same person. Absolutely. And, 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 and we know 
from the mental health side of things that when you're afflicted from you know the the heavy cost that's often uh, imposed by those professions your family is also suffering from that like there's there's a ton of people impacted so it's not just you it's you your family it's their family it's their work it's because everybody it's a it, it's a chain it's a, it causes a, a chain reaction right and it's interesting because it brings kind of another point which is having a supportive uh, a support system at home and and the sacrifices that those families the families of first responders and and the spouses of first responders and the kids of first responders are doing on the daily so this isn't a individual sacrifice this is a collective sacrifice this is people that have accepted a way of life whether by way of doing it themselves or supporting it or and enabling it and uh and and we owe it to them like this is not about you and i try to this is the one thing that i always try to reinforce and it wasn't very it wasn't very hard uh, when i was on the team everybody was at the same mindset but uh, i do believe that it has to go it has to go broad and interestingly this year i had a few friends um, that are patrol officers and they ended up in some very tight predicament. And, um, you know, I had one of them call me a few weeks back and he said, my entire career, I really didn't understand what you were going on about. And this happened. And in 20 seconds of this encounter, within this encounter, I understood everything you've ever said to me. (laughs) (laughs) But he's like, all I could think about is now it's too late. But thankfully, he made it out. And he's completely, he's completely changed um, his, uh, his, uh, his mindset. Yeah. Well, I think one of the fallacies that we, I think a lot of us, are not only say soul, that's the wrong word, but we kind of find ourselves believing is when incident X happens, there's going to be this adrenaline rush and you're going to have the superhuman strength and, you know, you're going to rise to the occasion. Whereas the reality is, and it's been reinforced again by so many tactical people on here, is that that's complete bullshit, that you're going to fall to your level of training. So, you know, if you have this kind of myth that you're going to go from not taking your fitness seriously, not taking your training seriously, not being up on your protocols or your pediatric EMS, you know, um, whatever it is, you're not going to miraculously turn into a, you know, a fire or police unicorn and just kind of float on a rainbow and and have this amazing success. No, you're going to end up as as a chicken with their head cut off and probably a liability on the scene. So understanding that wherever, like you said, whatever training you've done up to that point, that's the sum total. You're not going to do better than that. You're just going to be at that point and hopefully that's enough. Yeah, and I will go a step further and say you're likely to be at that point in a level below because it's really, really hard, regardless of how realistic you make your training, it's very difficult to achieve the level of stress that can be created by a real life dynamic situation with real lives on the line. So you are, you know, that's why when I'm being asked like, what level should police officers be in terms of BJJ and a lot of people and I myself included for years have said blue belts is sufficient. And I don't believe that anymore. You know, I think that, yes, it's a start and it's a great start, but um, send a blue belt to a tournament and see him turn into a white belt real quick. Right. So it's the same thing. Like if you have a, a purple and brown belt level and you're now fighting somebody that has some abilities, you, you are probably two belt below now on the, on this extremely stressful situation. And I, it, there was, um, who was the UFC fighter that had somebody break into his house a few, a few months back 
and um, I can't remember his name now, but um, anyways, like trained professional fighter, UFC level, and 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 you know, most humans will never understand the difference between UFC level fighters and <laughs> and and other humans. I mean, they're really you know the epitome of 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 having the ability to fight and take care of themselves. And it's interesting because this guy was literally fighting, um, you know, a, a drug addict inside his residence. And he said, he came out after and said, man, I couldn't do anything. Like I, I controlled it and controlled position, but he, there was no, you know, there was no pain compliance. There was no, sur- there was no surrender. There was no tapping. There was nothing. Like I just couldn't, I didn't seem to be able to put it all together. And it sent my mind into a whirlwind and everything. So we are now talking about a trained fighter that goes into a cage in front of millions of people, locks himself into a, a, a you know a cage for deadly combat with someone, for potentially deadly combat with someone that actually spent twelve weeks training for them, and has a, 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 a you know an elevated level of stress inoculation, and for him to come out and say that, what does that say about your blue belt, right? Yeah, well, I'm a blue belt, and I can totally attest. <laughs> like, I, I feel like a white belt about 99% of the time when wearing a blue belt. So, yeah, I mean, I agree absolutely, and because you, you you still have that control in training, and that that actually segues pretty good to um, another area that I really want to talk about: realism in training itself. So, I've seen a gamut of you know of of training environments from the best one with one of the departments I worked for that really, really understood a couple of them actually. And it was horrendous. It was intense. It was hot. We were puking in our masks. I mean, it was just worst case scenario, um, evolutions. And then I've had it as well where I shit you not, the mannequin that was supposed to be a person was 60 pounds, you know, <laughs> and, and, oh, you know, you, you do it for two minutes and all right, take your gear off. You know, oh, it's raining now. We have to stop. Oh, it's too dark. You know what I mean? So that's another thing that plagues us. And sometimes it's even the unions that are causing these problems. So again, I've preloaded that question completely. But what is your philosophy on realism of training? Yeah, I have a pretty measured approach in in most things, and training is one of them. And and I do believe that professional training is critical, defensible training is critical, and reasonable training is critical. I also believe that an element of, of, of elevated difficulty and, and, um, and, and stress is obviously required, but not all the time, not on every scenario, not everything is a okay corral, because now what you are doing is you're starting to implement a mindset that we are at war constantly. And, and there has to be that, there has to be that, that, that understanding that, yeah, if a police officer find themselves into a gunfight in between two cars and a, and a, and a soldier overseas finds himself in a gunfight, if you were to pause time and ask them, are you at war? They would both answer, yes, I'm at war right now. I'm fighting for my life and the life of others. But the reality is if you send your police officers on the streets thinking that they're at war with everyone, it just will not pay off. They will end up being at war with everyone. So you can't have that. It has to be realistic. It has to be reasonable. And from time to time, you need to crank the heat, right? So I would say in terms of 
uh, training, having a designated training unit that actually goes and, 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 and investigates and researches and they're properly trained themselves. You know, a train to trainer type scenarios where your trainers are very highly trained from very reputable um, reputable organization or, or reputable sources. And then for them to sit down and hash out what the training is going to look like so that you have a balance. With that, there's also injury mitigations, you know, and, 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 and I think I speak on behalf of everyone when I say, look, like we want to train and we want to train hard, but we also want to be able to have a life and we also want to be able to be, you know, to do the activities that we enjoy doing and stay healthy and all this stuff. So yeah, there is a risk in training and, and we accept that. But if we make it so extreme that the risk of injuries now outweighs the possibility of actually being injured on the street, like we're, you know, it just has to be, it just has to be a defensible, reasonable middle ground. And from time to time, there has to be a collective reality check. You know, you're, you're speaking about puking in your mask and that, well, maybe you have a physical endeavor where you're going to push your troops and say, hey, man, you know, we haven't done that in six months, but guess what? That's reality. But that is, I have seen people change the way they train and the way they live by having experienced that even once, you know, in a year or in a six months or in three years. So I think the issue that we have now in trying to convince people to do certain types of training is that it hasn't happened. So if you've been pol policing for 10 years on the streets and you've never had an issue that way, now what? How am I to convey to you that this critical incident could occur and this is how you would feel? But if I do it six months, in six months, you'll remember. You know, I, I just I just think an acceptable middle has to be has to be has to be um, found and, 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 and delivered. Yeah, and I love that example you use, the, the, the warlike mentality. I can see absolutely how if you're just kind of boot camping police officers over and over and over again, then yeah, the, the, you're almost going to create hypervigilance and maybe maybe a little too trigger happy. But I think that you, you nailed it from my perspective too, the way I've seen over seeing this spectrum of different training arenas. These two that I'm talking about did exactly what you're saying. They didn't beat the hell out of you every day. You had, you know, more technical training that was a lot more low key. And then you'd have crucibles sometimes and it would suck and you would be exhausted. But that's that nasty place. Just like you said, that there's now your benchmark. Where's your baseline? Well, I know I've been here before. And there's other things that you can use to, to also visit that CrossFit, Jiu Jitsu, you know, strongman, whatever it is that you do outside of that. But. You know, that whole it's never happened before, that was exactly the mentality of where I worked this last time. And to me, the counter to that is, well, if you understand anything about probability, that means that it's far more likely to happen today than it has the last 10 years. So you need to be more prepared now. Though a plane will never fly into the world trade. Well, it did, you know. So I think that's that's such an important um, couple of points that you made that setting that bar high, but then also being very cautious not to drive your men, men and women into the ground either. Yeah, one of the one of the consistent theme that I see, especially and as you see this, especially on the firearms range, um, there is a propensity to make the training, um, you know, everything but fun. And uh, and it's interesting because you can train and be serious in your application of the of the train of the training techniques or the SOPs that you're you know rehearsing or practicing or whatever the case may be, but you can still make it that 
your membership and your troop wants to go back to training. They look forward to their next training block. Add the other elements, add the, the mental resilience side, add the, 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 self, the positive self-talk, the, the cognitive behavioral therapy, the, 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 you know, like a breathing technique or whatever the case may be, like just add, because I think, again, it's, it's an oversimplification to think hands and policing, hands and feet skills, shooting, combatives, this and that. Very, very small portion of what we do. We need a ton more than that. In fact, the one insult that you can give me is as a police officer, when I show up on a call and, and we work together, is for you to tell me, man, you look strong or, <laughs> or uh, you know, I'm sure you can take care of yourself. Like, I don't want that. I, tell me, I'm, tell me I'm, I can speak to people. Tell me I'm smart. Tell me, tell me, I'm, uh, you know, I, I have a good perspective or whatever. Like, I, I, you don't need to tell me anything really, but you, you know what I'm getting at? W what I'm saying is there's all these other areas that are, that needs to be, that needs to be um, invested in so that you could be the complete package. Like, you don't want to show up, be Rambo, good to go in absolutely perfect, uh, perfect physical condition and, and, and good to go in all your, your hands and feet skills and when was the last time you read a leadership book? When was the last time you, you know, like, so there is a balance there and you can achieve that and you can do that. You can have presenters come into your training days. You can do like, There's a variety of different things that you can do to make it so interesting that you keep your members. And don't get me wrong. Like still every three weeks when the training block comes, they'll be like, oh man, you know, there might be some running and yeah, there's, there will be a certain level of that. But if you make it miserable, it will go far beyond that. They will, they, will, they will tune you off before it even starts. And now you're not accomplishing anything because you're actually starting with full cup. You know, they, they, um, you know, when a cup is filled and you try to add water, what happens? It just spills everywhere. So I, I think there's, there's ways to, to engage the members. There's ways to deliver uh, valuable training and there's ways to do the occasional benchmark and and uh, it, it has to be part of a calculated and defensible plan yeah no i i agree completely now you hit on the the mental side you know we we both have professions where you know fear is a very real thing and as as you said you know especially if you are trying to de-escalate a situation fear anxiety hypervigilance might escalate that situation so what are some of the the mental practices the breathing techniques any any tools that you take on the on the mental side for your toolbox well i mean for me in the tactical world we use uh diaphrag diaphragmatic uh breathing or, or tactical breathing it is uh, as it is referred to often uh not necessarily for a 12 second count but what the idea is is to to sort of um, combat some of the physiological uh, effects of stress, like, you know, blood all pooling to the major organs, which which takes blood away from your extremities, which makes it harder to deliver certain certain um, or or uh, leads to a, a loss of, of fine motor skills or, or whatever the case may be. But also accelerated heart rate to an unmanageable rate where you now become essentially uh, fight or flight or submit, you know, type state, which is you know, then you go from the frontal cortex to the amygdala and then you end up with a monkey brain and, and you're really reactive and you're really, you know, you're losing your ability to process the information and react according to SOPs 
And, and so one of the critical skill that I learned very early in my tactical career was tactical breathing, which consists essentially of taking a deep breath through your nose for a four or five second count, keeping it in for four or five seconds and releasing for five seconds and do that for three or four cycles. What it does is it, it's incredible actually what it does is it just lowers your, your heart right down and everything else, you know, clarity returns to you and, and, and your, 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 your blood, uh, you know, feels like it's where it should be versus, <laughs> versus, versus pooled in certain areas of your body, which are going to be an impediment to your, to the application of your training techniques. Um, so if I had to, if I had to sort of suggest one thing for me, that was the biggest tool. And I see it uh, being used, you know, in the octagon or in the cage by, by some fighters. I see it in high level jujitsu. I see it uh, in, in, in a lot of professions where they're actually at the Olympics, even, you know, like whatever, whatever the, uh, the, the field of endeavors, people that have to perform critical tasks under extreme stress will often, you will see them take deep breaths and slow everything down. Uh, there's a reason for that. It is absolutely miraculous what it does. Yeah, no, and I, I've used that myself on the way to calls before. We we get some of those calls that you know is going to be high stress, and the the trip from the station to the call is a great place to do that. And so when you step off, whatever happens, at least you're not already subconsciously hyperventilating on the way. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And it's and it's interesting because in terms of mental clarity, and that's. That's a good point you're making there because it's the same. You guys are assessing, you know, what it is that you have and what is the potential expected response to this and whether some of the contingencies and well, it's the same. I mean, police officers are responding to calls. And I mean, I've spoke about this before, but I mean, the calls that police get has nothing to do with the way we calls are received in Hollywood movies. You know, where with extreme clarity and, and, and the details are known and, you know, the address is known and the, the suspect description is, is confirmed and weapons are confirmed. And the problem with policing is everything is chaos. It is like the information comes from everywhere. There is witnesses everywhere. Um, ocular witnesses are the worst witnesses ever, you know, especially if there's any stress involved, you'll have various uh, description of suspects, you'll have various with were there weapons, were they not, which description of vehicles, you know, a direction of travel, they're going north, they're going east, they're going west, they're going south, like everything is absolute and other chaos. Then you hear potentially here, you know, uh, members on scene, uh, perhaps clicking their radios because we have so much kit on our belts and we're coming out of cars, in and out of cars. So stuff happens, right? So radios get clicked and now you don't know if they're in trouble. And so your stress level is again elevated. And now based on your risk assessment and the totality of the circumstances, you're driving your car, lights and sirens, which again, increases the stress. And so you have all these adrenaline dumps and dopamine, you know, sort of uh, you know, relation there up and down and you're going with absolute chaos and your job is to try to make sense of chaos. And your job is also to try to formulate what the appropriate response to that chaos is going to be potentially. And if you're wrong with the contingencies are going to be before you get there so that you don't cause a critical stall upon arriving. Like that is a lot of stuff to ask a human being to do. Well, sleep while sleep deprived. <laughs> yeah, you know, precisely. And, and of course, at night and with a, uh, on little sleep, because Murphy's Law, if something bad happens, it happens at a bad time, right? 
Yeah, absolutely. So, so those are those are critical elements um, that are, and again, we don't do a very good job as as police officers to to actually verbalize this to the public. The public does not understand that because they form their opinion of what we do based on what they know, which is what Hollywood. Mm-hmm. It's the same with us. The same exact thing. I mean, you do a cardiac arrest and they jump up and give you a hug. <laughs> that couldn't be further from the truth. <laughs> yeah, if you're successful, maybe in a, in a couple months. Yeah. Well, I mean, even with the dispatch information, I mean, there's a lot of kind of bitching at dispatch by a lot of us, you know, because, and again, we're they can only relay what they're given to. But I mean, I've, I've had calls where it's coming as a hemorrhage, bleeding. Well, yeah, the guy did bleed because he shot himself in the head. None of that made it to us. So we get on scene. We don't know if it's a murder. There's a weapon on the ground. Um, so yeah, I mean, uh, but the thing is that we have in our favor is usually in, in a rescue, in an ambulance, in a, in a, in a fire engine or truck, there's someone else manning the computer. Now, what I'm always amazed at a single police officer vehicle is how they're able to drive lights and sirens and try and get the information and work the radio all at the same time whilst trying not to die or kill anyone else. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and again, multitasking is, is something that yeah you are trained you are trained for but I mean on the on a scale of if if I was to do a, a risk assessment on this like should we be multitasking while aside from in your head should we be physically multitasking while on the way to an emergency and driving lights and sirens and potentially and I know organizationally for us um, our members are working alone most of the time so it's not like you have somebody on your flank uh, you know telling you that clear right and clear left and you're, you're, you're good to proceed it to the intersection or whatever the case may be. Um, you know, so that in itself is, 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 is another uh, contention, but, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's tough, very difficult. Well, again, something I've asked a few law enforcement guests, uh, I had a a few LAPD guys that were on, um, that rode two to a car. And again, we're talking about an environment for, responders to thrive in an environment to minimize mistakes which is you know something that's being highlighted at the moment one of the things that seems like it would be a much much better environment would be to have two people to a car that's going to improve the chances of you know going hands-on you know i would think reduce the chances of either drawing a weapon or having one officer shot by you know by the civilian so what's your perspective on that yeah i i i truly believe that that having pairs is is absolutely critical and having pairs um sort of symbiotically work together is even more critical you know the 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 other side of that which of course we have to look at is the cost the cost associated with that right so if you're looking at at a police force that has say 500 members and they are one to a car if you double them up realistically depending on some of the positions within the department, you'll have 800, maybe 900 members, right? So the issue, again, is through the lens of society and for a variety of different reasons, policing is seen as a necessary evil. And now, I mean, now it could be argued that it's actually worse. Like now they want to defund us, which obviously is the complete, um, it's a complete opposite from what needs to happen in order to get professional service but it's really really difficult for organizations to achieve 
a two a two to a two to two to a car ratio if the the financial stakeholders are not behind that and so again in light in line with what i was talking about earlier which is establishing what it is that we do how does it work and making sure that we educate people and that we do so um uh, i would say consistently but also that we do so uh, regularly, because the issues that we're also faced with is, and, and we know how it is in the levels of government or or even at the municipal level, you know, you have somebody in a chair, they're they're eager, they want to do this, and 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 you you know you present a case, you present a business case, you 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 educate them, you do all this. Six months from now, somebody else in the chair, and it's the redo, right? But that's just a if you have a package ready to go, then you can sort of have those conversations and there has to be there has to be um a change in attitude at at the government level as well to to realize like look this is not necessary evil this is necessary which is completely different and because it is necessary and there and the research have shown that if we do if we take this action and that action it will actually improve public safety and this to be corroborated by professionals then we have a, we have a case, right? But there's a reluctance to do that. I think what we're seeing right now in Canada and the U.S. is 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 um, is for some members of government to jump on the on the defund the police bandwagon, right? Which is absolutely first of all, it's it's absolutely inappropriate uh, because oftentimes it is done long before the investigations are completed. And uh, and that is not a luxury that police forces can afford or politicians, um, you know, but oftentimes it has to do with survival and politics rather than than um, than what's right. But those are those are, you know, there, there's a lot there. You know, if I was to prioritize and execute <laughs> to try to fix, to, to try to problem solve this, um, you know, we would have to start where there is nothing, which is the sharing of inform- of information. Once we have done that, how do we. How do we increase transparency and all this stuff? And then you can get into what the cost would be. But yeah, if I had it my way, two to a car, no questions asked. Beautiful. Well, I'm going to go completely the other side of the coin now and reverse engineer. I think we talked about this on Wednesday, but I want to bring it up again. I've been flogging this subject like a dead horse, but from my layman eyes, my very uneducated, disconnected, never been in law, law enforcement eyes, even you know, as a foreigner as well, what I see on the streets, having been a medic for 14 years and you know, put many a yellow sheet over a dead, you know, gangbanger dealer, prostitute, whatever it is, I see police and many members of society in the same game, in the same video game, being run by another an entity and that entity to me is the prohibition of drugs so we've created an environment unlike some other countries that don't walk around you know police officers don't walk around carrying guns there's not a gun on every civilian um where this environment now has put so much power into the criminals hands and we had alcohol prohibition it failed miserably drug prohibition was started on the back of pretty horrendous racism when you look at it and we're a hundred years deep and it's an epic failure, just like alcohol prohibition was. And when I speak to someone, Zhao Gulao and some of the other people I've had on the show from countries where they, they legalize addiction, they sent these addicts through mental health counseling, through addiction counseling. 
they rev- not only reversed their their um, addiction epidemic that they had, but also the streets became so much safer. The the prisons started emptying out. the The court system was actually open for you to process people who actually were there for other crimes. So those cases could actually be expedited. So what is your perspective on prohibition of drugs on on the drug epidemic? And the connection between that and not only the safety of our police officers, but also creating an environment for there to be such danger between police officers and civilians. So before I answer this, like I'll just reiterate that my organization may not stand behind my statements. (laughs) (laughs) This is our safe space, though. (laughs) (laughs) And when I say organization, I also mean um, many police officers in the country here may not. Uh, may not agree with my with my opinion, but I believe my opinion to be an evidence based opinion. I've researched it. We, you and I, have spoken about this with the Port- with the Portugal case, and and I've looked into it, and I've looked at the data. The issue is this. So before I speak to before I answer your questions, um, I, I will just speak to one thing. So what's happening? What's happened in in law enforcement is, as you mentioned, for a hundred years there has been a, a, a drug war, which has failed miserably. There is no question that it has, and you're absolutely correct in that, in that assessment. Um, <clears throat> the issue is when you and I are discussing the legalization of 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 drugs or the decriminalization of drugs. What we are effectively doing is we are saying to the people that have spent 20 or 30 or 40 years of their careers fighting drugs, you did that for nothing. And that is where the entrenchment in policing is, right? And when you speak to members and they get very, very defensive about this subject, oftentimes it has to do with that. Who wants to be told what you've dedicated your life to for the last 20 years was a write-off and it was useless. The fact is it was not useless. It was the set of circumstances at the time. And you acted in good faith and lawfully thinking that this was the, you know, as an organization, we thought that this was the way to go. And not only as an organization, as a, as a, as a civilization, really, um, that this was the way to go. If we are to, and, and then there's, so there is no emotional overinvestment in there. And that's it, that's a critical piece. Emotional overinvestment polarizes people. You know, I'm emotional, so I'm all left. I'm emotional, so I'm all right. There is no middle there. Like the left can never do anything right and the right can never do anything, anything right. And, and those couldn't be further from the truth. Life isn't black and white. It's actually shades of gray. It's gray, but it's shades of gray. So there's a, a white spectrum there. I, believe that the data is supportive, that the countries that have legalized drugs have seen a drop in violent crimes almost every single time. And we are talking to extreme levels, drastic levels. So now we know that what we have done is actually not working at all. We have no measure of success. So now the question is, do we how does that, how do we consider this? Do we go, okay, well, this absolutely didn't work. So let's do the complete opposite to see if it works. Again, that's an extreme approach, right? Is there a middle ground there? Is there a middle ground where we can start feeling the change, you know, and 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 let it go for five years and see how that works? You know, I truly believe, truly believe that there is, 
hundreds of police officers killed out there. There's thousands and thousands of, of civilians dead in gang wars. That that could have been prevented had it not been for fighting over drugs. I, I truly believe that. And 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 I would challenge um, the status quo on this. You, there, I, I believe that there are arguments with respect to addiction, and and I don't think that those those arguments are actually standing a candle or holding a candle to the the plus side that we would have if somebody is to be addicted and if somebody will have a drug problem, legal or not, this will happen. The fact that this is a stepping stone for this empirical evidence is in supporting that. So would I be, if you said to me right now, would you be um, in favor of legalizing all drugs all out starting tomorrow? The answer would be no, because I'm not that kind of extreme, you know? I would love to see what the data says and how it was implemented in other countries to do solid research on it and then see if there's a middle ground and start somewhere and see how that impacts. And if there is a measure of winning, then perhaps we're on the right track and maybe we move further into it, you know, kind of a measured approach, but at the same time, bearing in mind that what we are doing currently and have done for the last hundred years isn't working, just isn't. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's spot on. I mean, I know Portugal did I think Switzerland did? I mean, they did blanket do it, but that was after, like you said, years of, of research and and presenting to the the public. The public got to vote on it. You know, the I think the it was the right that was initially opposed to it when it came to voting again. They were completely for it. You know, so yeah, there's absolutely a sequential element. But I think when people understand this is about the addicts, this isn't the pushers, this isn't the the smugglers. But you want to stop, you know, the counter to the, the police violence that we see at the moment is like, oh, well, there's, you know, there's black on black crime, there's, there's Hispanic on, you know, whatever. It's like, yeah, also from the same thing. So that's the point is if you want to stop all the issues that everyone's arguing about, that's the, the one of the main root causes. And then, like we were talking about, two policemen to a car, more training, better, you know, um, de-escalation training. All those things. Well, now you have the resources to do that. That same budget can now be spent creating an incredibly well-trained professional police force. And then we can affect many of these elements that create mental ill health in the first place that push people towards these drugs. So there's so many layers to this, in, in my opinion. Again, I'm just one guy, got to speak to some pretty amazing people, got to see it myself in Portugal firsthand, got to, like I said watched 15 year old kids get murdered over drug turf my whole career so like you said what have we got to lose mexico is a war zone because of drug criminal because of prohibition of drugs they're you know they're supplying the addiction in this country so i don't think there's anything to lose other than someone putting you know finally having the courage to say this isn't working we're going to start learning from the world and making our own version of a trial journey towards decriminalization yeah absolutely and i mean there there's there's a, there's sort of an, another two segue that we could go into which is we we haven't even spoken about um alcohol i mean alcohol you know 
<laughs> I don't know how many of our calls were alcohol driven. I mean, you know, if, if we want to speak to something that's actually egregious, that's, you know, in every mom and pop's house, booze, right? And, and, and booze is, is, is a critical factor in, in a vast majority of calls for service for police, period. You know, so we're, because it's legal, we're not talking about it. But the reality is it's causing a ton of issues. And I'm certainly, I'm certainly wouldn't, I certainly wouldn't think, and I guarantee that booze is causing less issues than if it was illegal. We understand that. We have seen that less violence and less of everything. But I mean, it has an impact, like everything has and substance will. But the the question is, what has a great, the greater impact? Do we want to have violence and, and gang wars and gunplay and, or do we want to have, you know, this, it's a lesser of two evil, you know, if you will. Yeah, absolutely. Was it you that was telling me that when, um, marijuana specifically was introduced, I forget where it was now. I, it may have been someone else, but they said there was a, there's a, a significant reduction in the purchase of alcohol because I think it was Colorado because, uh, marijuana was available now again like you said lesser of two evils i know i have never been to a, a confirmed marijuana related fatal accident but it, like you said i mean alcohol is nearly always involved in those mm -hmm. well this also could have to do with the fact that we're you know the testing mechanisms for for impaired by drugs are have already been very restrictive but no I, you're absolutely right though in terms in terms of uh in terms of numbers there is no questions that it's far far exceeds um far exceeds impaired by by substance right absolutely so, yeah i mean I, it's all about having an open mind it, you know the mind works like a parachute open you know if if it's interesting because if if i think of a concept and i close my mind to it right away and i get really defensive i know i'm onto something i want to dig deeper into this why is this why is this bothering me <laughs> you know what why is this why is this creating a, an emotional reaction in me i need to be looking into this because there's potentially something to it and i think that needs to happen yeah no i agree and then i think when you take a step back and see there's just basal common sense to that principle then you've got to reverse engineer well why do i have that response why why does this smart against what i've been taught and then if it comes from a place that makes perfect sense you're like okay now i understand but if it you start learning about the history of whatever policy that was and you realize that it's actually got a, a horrendous beginning. You, yes, we're entrenched, but you're like, okay, if we can get enough people to really unravel this back down to its source, a lot of people are going to realize that we have the opportunity to make changes. Yeah, absolutely. And then we're also not the morality police. And so we, ha we need to stop policing morality. You know, like that, that's, that's, an interesting concept but it is absolutely real like we need we need to stop doing that we're not in the business of doing that we need we need to be focusing where the focus needs to be and um and that, and that's one way to achieve that um i you know i think when it comes to a culture of entrenchment you can look at it in in many aspects of policing where a lot of the policies or a lot of the SOPs or a lot of the, the 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 root, as you mentioned, you know, were were created, say, in in seventy eight and seventy six and in seventy five and seventy four, and still we're operating under the same premise. Well, humans are creatures of habit. Like we we just love to be comfortable, and we stay in. The, we put little boxes around ourselves, and we just stay in them. 
Um, but we know that we, society as, as a whole has evolved and has gone to a, you know, a variety of multiple changes and we need to be adapting. We need to be flexible. We need to be reassessing and we need, is this, this worked for the longest time? Is this still appropriate? Does it still work? No, let, let's update it. 10 years, five years. Is this still good? Do we see issues? Is there a way to make it better? And it, it takes will, it takes work, it takes, and it takes having people in the positions that are willing to get out of their comfort zone. Absolutely. I mean, you touched on alcohol. I think the other element of this is um, viewing any addiction as a mental health issue. And we see, I'm sure you do, in, in law enforcement and fire and in all our professions, alcohol is one of the the um, crutches that many of us lean on. I know it's my only, if I want to relate to, you know, think of one thing that I know is probably the least healthy thing that I do. It's not binge drinking by any means, but definitely frequent drinking, you know, to wind down. And understanding that addiction could be illicit drugs, but it could be alcohol, it could be food. I mean, look at the obese nation that we have, could be social media, you know, I mean, there's so many areas. So understanding as well that, if you take away a coping mechanism and make it illegal, it's either going to send those people into the shadows to still get it or just shift them to another one. So not only do we have to address that element, we have to address the mental health of our country. We should be, the US specifically, should be one of the happiest nations on the planet. We're the, one of the most affluent, yet really we're probably one of the most miserable as well. Yeah, and, and, and I think it's safe to say that 200 years of comfort will do that, right? So, <laughs> um, you know, good times, they say that, what is it? What, what is the saying? Um, hard times create good men, good men create good time, good times create weak men. And when I say men, I mean, obviously all genders, but, um, but uh, it's, it's, an interesting, it's an interesting concept. So now you have a society that's been extremely comfortable and you know for 200 years to the point where we've completely lost touch with reality um i was watching uh, i guess dana white making a statement about uh, a wrestler in uh, in iran who apparently i mean i don't i haven't read the details of the case but apparently was in a peaceful process protest out in iran and he will be executed really you know yeah and it's and it's you know <laughs> What kind of world do we live in right now that that our situations, and that includes Canada as well, is to the point where we have completely lost perspective, like, and and we think we are being oppressed. And you look you look at countries, and I'm not saying that there isn't level of oppression. I understand that, but really we are not. Like we are out there, you know, doing the things that we do because we've lost perspective we we have like we're over inflating our our our, our issues and w you know we think that we're oppressed you know just it's it's such um it leads to deflection you know like who is responsible for our ailment and i mean it's a vicious circle it just it just goes it's like a merry-go-round it just goes around and around and we just we won't get out of that tailspin unless we actually take the time to stop look around assess what we have in relation to those that have less not those that have more i never look at those that have more i'm looking at those that have less like what where are we where do we stand as a society and man are we ever comfortable 
Well, exactly. I think that's, if you could sum up one thing that we need right now, it's gratitude. We mm-hmm. are, you know, extremely lucky. I mean, you know, if you wake up in the US and you have a roof over your head and food in the fridge and, you know, your kids are healthy, you're blessed. Like you said, you could be in, you know, Taliban regime or who knows. So, and then to me, that's such a missed opportunity for us to really be a thriving nation to then be able to start, uh, you know, like, radiating out and and positively affecting other nations i'm not saying you could overturn iran's philosophy overnight but i mean you know right now we're looking like a war zone well what if we were switzerland you know what what if a superpower was whoever let's say a fictional president that actually was worth a shit showed up on the ballots (laughs) and was out there doing good and spreading compassion and kindness and not being weak but trying to heal political um, relationships in the world and try and positively influence countries. And maybe, like I said, prohibition of drugs, changing Afghanistan, Mexico, some of these places that are partly because of, partly the way they are because of the drug, you know, the the, uh, illicit drug trade, you know. So we have the opportunity to really send positive ripples through the world. But if we don't fix our own shit, then how the hell are we going to help anyone else? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you know, it wouldn't be the first time in history that a very, very strong and prosperous nation ate, ate itself from the inside. And, and I mean this respectfully. I mean, I've had, you know, nothing but good experiences uh, in the States and, and, and working with partner agencies and traveling the States all over. And, I, and I've never had, um, you know, remotely close to anything negative to say about uh, about uh, the U.S., but I will say this, there are people out there that are certainly keeping an eye on how bad things get in the U.S. And I feel like we, we, you know, we, we don't put enough importance on could someone capitalize on what's going on in the U.S. And is there a possibility that this could lead to the country's demise? And I think I think you need somebody to come in and sort of bridge the gap and bring people back together. And yeah, you're not going to bring them all back together. understand that. But if we, but if you, if you reach the bulk of the collective, you're going to be, you're going to be in a much, much better shape. I mean, having somebody um, in there that doesn't have the ability to do that or certainly doesn't do it um, is a big, big issue. And I don't really do politics all that much. And I, I, I really don't. Um, but, but certainly we can see the sim- the symptomology is there, right? Like there is a giant polarization. So somebody has to, somebody absolutely has to unite that country back. No question. If it doesn't happen, um, it, there could be some very, very harsh consequences. I agree 100%. And like I said, if I think if you're a patriot, you have the uncomfortable conversations. You know, you can't just say, well, our country is great. <laughs> it doesn't work like that. You have to work for it. So, yeah, I mean, we have to, it's not saying that you don't want to be in it's the opposite. You you know the potential of your nation. You you see the incredible good in so many people, but it's being misrepresented and like you said, not led. And I'm not even talking about current like Everyone that we've got to choose from now, as with the last time, is fucking awful. As a human being, we're out of 330 billion people. So our system is broken to even find good leaders that people would actually be proud to be standing next to, you know, our flag. So it's not about left or right. It's about 
understanding the potential, understanding what a good leader should be, and then create an environment that we can pluck, uh, you know, someone from wherever. They don't have to be a millionaire to end up in that that top position. So, um, but like you said, I'm not I'm not a big political person either. But it's it's again coming from kindness and compassion. You want to see this this great nation thrive. Um, I want to transition to physical fitness because you know there's a there's obviously um that within our tactical profession and there's the crossfit story as well so from your perspective you were a martial artist growing up when did you find crossfit and then when did you bring that into the tactical space in your organization yeah so um for me i found crossfit in two 2004, I believe, 2004, 2005, when I was uh, a member of, uh, of the Canadian Air, Air Carrier Protective Program, which is sort of the equivalent of the uh, Federal Air Marshal Program. Um, I needed something that I could do on the road. Um, and because there were because the workouts were posted on the website and that you needed minimal equipment. I could find, you know, a pull-up bar, a bar, um, and other implements. And, uh, and, and we, you know, tapped into other uh, modalities such as gymnastics and these, these sorts of body weight things, which I could do anywhere on the road. I started to, um, give CrossFit a try until then I had been mostly involved in, you know, uh, bodybuilding. Uh, I had done some strongman stuff. I had done some powerlifting, um, so I'd been lifting for a long time because uh, I started working out when I was like working out with weights when I was like 14 or 13. And so by the time um, I got on, TV, um, on the air carrier, I, I don't know how old I was. But anyway, I, it was a it was a long time uh, after. And so I already had a good general understanding of the mechanics of uh, movement. But I also had a good understanding of me, myself as an athlete and and how um, I reacted to to training programs. So yeah, 2004, uh, me and a friend of mine, uh, Toronto Airport, remember it as if it was yesterday. Um, I believe the workout was Cindy, which is uh, five pull-ups, uh, 10 push-ups and 15 squats, 20 minutes, as many rounds as you can. And it lasted about seven minutes. <laughs> <laughs> I love the first CrossFit stories. <laughs> and both of us were in the change room, green. <laughs> It was not pretty, but, um, but it was amazing. I, I, you know, I just, somebody that always, um, has enjoyed pushing myself and, um, and, uh, reaping the benefits of, of a challenge. I, I certainly loved it. Like I, I hated it for the first, you know, 45 minutes until I felt better. Then we had dinner and I was good to go. <laughs> <laughs> but again, it, it, you know, this was a case where I started it in an uncontrolled environment with no coach and you know if i was in any uh, reputable box or reputable crossfit affiliate i would have had somebody say to me okay look i know you've done some weightlifting but i need you to leave your ego at the door this is a different ball game we are going to go and do 10 minutes of this today right even though i only did seven <laughs> and maybe <laughs> we we're going to do you know uh you know, just, just scale accordingly so that I could get a taste for it without necessarily um, getting um, sick or anything. But to me, that was good because I've, I don't need to be sugarcoated into anything. Like this was a, a major wake up call for me. And I just, um, I never looked back. So for the first couple of years, I would say for the first 
from 2004 to say 2008, I did it, um, you know, partially. I I I, I followed the the CrossFit main website. Um, I did the workouts one day. The next day, I would do you know chest buys and tries or 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 legs or whatever the case may be, and then and then it started to shift towards um, supersetting my exercises and doing them more without rest and. And so it kind of shifted from the more strength-oriented component to the more conditioning side of things. And I was sort of playing around without an actual plan to see how I reacted to certain things. And uh, and I finally transitioned over fully in 2009 when I um, took my level one certification and uh, decided to just invest myself fully in it. Brilliant. Well, you sent me a video speaking of horrendous workouts and you in this video, you took a couple of things. I want to get to one in a moment, but you your gym members did Murph and that was impressive in itself, you know, many of whom were wearing vests or scaling appropriately. And you the coaches were all coaching them and cheering them on and, and seeing that community within your gym was amazing. The following day, your coaches did Murph and I mean, some of the other weights that some of your fellow coaches were carrying around was was insane you know, in, in itself, especially your 155-pound coach with 70 pounds. But you were saying that incrementally every year you've been adding 10 pounds to your vest and you were at 120 pounds. So tell me about that journey, you know, and how you got there and if you even went any further. Um, and then, uh, you know, why why you did that and then the importance of the hero workouts. Okay, so there's there's a few things here. First of all, um, you know, I, I just want to be really clear on the fact that as a coach, I, I I would never encourage one of my athletes to run Murph with a 120 pound vest. This had nothing to do with physical fitness. It had everything to do with a sacrifice, and it was two different things. Evidently, I prepared accordingly, so I knew I I risked less by doing it by being prepared physically. But the goal of the workout was to substantially sacrifice on account of people that have paid the ultimate, um, the, that I paid the ultimate sacrifice, one of the deadliest special operation day in U.S. history. Um, uh, for those that have seen, for, for the listeners that don't know, Mike Murphy was leading a patrol and the patrol, as, as portrayed in the movie Lone Survivor, um, encountered some some um a goat herder and and sons and it led to a, a hard compromise meaning that these people went to the taliban forces and basically disclosed that the americans were there uh they were seals and uh and they they, they got hunted down hunted down the mountain basically and 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 they fought uh, until um, there was only one left alive but then Subsequent to this, there's there's another side of this where the special operation community does what the special op- operation community does. They all jumped in a, in a chopper to go rescue these guys, and the chopper crashed, so they killed an additional. So there was 22 uh, casualties, um, if I if I have memory serves me correct, but 22 casualties in in one day uh, from the special operation casualties from the special operation world, and um, and I think. You know, most humans just have no understanding of what these people sacrifice on the daily. And we're talking about 
ultimate sacrifice. I'm not talking about ultimate sacrifice. I'm talking about sacrificing on a daily. If you're a member of a special operation unit right now, um, most humans, you'll encounter more adversity in a day than most humans in a year. Like, and people don't know that. And it's just by virtue of training and, you know, by virtue of having your weakness exposed and having to work on things and having to be dialed in and having to be 100% focused with consequences that are dire. Um, you know, I digress. But the goal of running Murph with such a heavy load was to to say to the the military community and the soft community and, and all serving and members, look, I'm going to put myself through an incredible amount of pain, which isn't going to be even remotely close to what you guys are enduring to serve your country. But I just want you to know that we see you, you know, type deal. We see you and, and, and I'm going to make this as miserable as I possibly can so that I personally can never forget the sacrifices of the men and women, you know, and, and I mean, I just, I could go on all day. I have all the respect in the world for the people that are uh, going to combat on our account. It is absolutely insane, but it, it is, it is needed and it is incredible that to this day um, there's generation after generation willing to do that. And it's completely Anyways, um, I, I digress, but but yeah. So so the, the the goal was to make it as as possible as as miserable as as humanly possible, and I actually achieved that. I was very successful in that. <laughs> and um, over the years, I had done it with um, uh, seventy pounds. I had done, I'd done it with sixty. Um, I'd done it with seventy, and then I, I went up to ninety. The year before, I did ninety-five. And and a hundred, I did a hundred the year before, and um, and the time that it had taken, and just the way the pull up felt, and everything, I just felt like I could take it on. So there was a, I was approached, um, a, a friend approached me and said, "Hey, we, you know, we would love to make a documentary about this, uh, if if you don't mind us coming to film." So that kind of was did two things: is a, it was going to give us a bit of exposure, not from a business standpoint but exposure to the military community so that they understood that we, we did that for them. And, and, and we wanted that. We wanted them to know we didn't want anything in return. We want, if anything, we lost business because people thought we were crazy. <laughs> <laughs> but the goal was for the military community as a whole to understand that we, that we saw them. And, and this applies to our Canadian forces. I mean, I, I picked this specific day in, 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 in the Afghanistan campaign for a reason. It just was a very deadly day. And I really don't care what flag these guys had on their arms. I, I really don't. I, you know, I think the biggest, one of the biggest uh, mistake that we make is to divide, um, you know, people because of their flags. I mean, it, it doesn't matter. Those were, you know, incredible humans um, doing things that are unfathomable that should not be expected from anybody and 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 they all perished on account of the person next to them and and you know is this and and the greater good of the mission so that was the goal and so we ran that in 2012 and uh, yes 100 and 121 pound um was uh, <laughs> the funny story is i actually hadn't put it on um until i put the vest on while we were filming and i remember my brain telling me 
take the back door and run out of here as fast <laughs> punch the cameraman first <laughs> unfortunately there, were, there was multiple so and they were out of range so i would have been i would have been busted but uh <laughs> but yeah so so that was uh, an incredible endeavor and it led to some amazing friendship um, from all over the world, we've had military personnel and for, former military personnel from the soft community, but also from regular forces and, and just, um, you know, send us messages of support and, and come over to visit and drop in the box and come and have a workout at Sheepdog. And I, you know, when I could, I get the coaches back there because these people are, say, coming from Australia or coming from New Zealand or whatever, whatever. Um, and they, they are, you know, it was kind of nice for us to get the coaches that were in the documentary be there, you know, to run a workout with them or, or, or whatever. So, so that was great. Um, it, it, you know, it, the support from the, from the community was, was amazing. If anything, the support I got from the CrossFit community was a bit weird, uh, you know, and, and I understand why, um, but they, they need to, 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 to go a little bit deeper than surface level when they did the research on why we did it. And if you actually take the time to watch the documentary, you, you see it, it's very clear what the goal and intent purposes was behind it and the safety mechanisms that were in place and all this good stuff. Yeah. Well, one thing that struck me, and I've said this exact same thing to my athletes when I coach you know, over and over again when it's hero workouts, no one cares what your time is. No one cares. But if you're going to a horrible place, if you've got, you know, elastic bands out the yin yang, but that's what you need to get through it and you're going to a dark place, then beautiful. And what I saw from that is I did Murph with uh, our fire gear on and a vest over that. And I actually got to a point where I had to strip the fire gear off. It was the middle of summer here and I just, I overheated. So I still owe myself a redo for that. But finish the workout with the vest still, just not with the gear. But that gear creates a, a horrendous amount of misery. And what I saw with you, I mean, you're just, you know, athletically, you're extremely fit, extremely strong. That was the weight that it took to crush you and take you to a point where, you know, you're literally second guessing if you're going to get through it. And I think that's what those hero workouts are about. No one cares about your time. If you've overscaled and it's not hard, you've completely missed the point. Obviously, if you've gone too far, you've missed the point too, if, if it's taken you three days to get through it. But doing that side by side, I mean, I saw the uh, the athletes in the video running together. That's what we do too. Just because you're done with that last you know set of squats doesn't mean that you shoot out on your own you you know if your friends are doing it in in a team then you wait for them too and you run together so i i totally understood it that that was the kind of weight that was a crucible for you and that also carries over like you said for that benchmark that mental test for what you do and you put uniform on as well yeah absolutely absolutely i did that and one of the key one of the key sort of rules in my affiliates i and i over the years i had two i own two affiliates no longer but i did um and in those affiliates um you know we never left anybody behind period we just didn't so i don't care how long it took we would be planking we would be you know doing hollow body rocks we would be sitting in a chair on the wall uh, not on an actual chair but you know in a chair position and and we would be like it, it didn't even matter what we did as a collective, but we are not letting somebody 
suffer alone while we're watching sipping on cold drinks with ice in it you know i just i have i despise that um i i i i think that as humans we do too much of that already um you know sort of looking over going oh it sucks to be you um you know i i have obviously by by virtue of my past it, it's been very it's been very very clear it's been made very very clear to me that the best chance that we have to get through this unscathed or at the very least in good standing is to be together. I like guess, <clears throat> you know, if you're, <clears throat> excuse me, if you are going to take life uh, on, on your own at all times and be a loner, good luck. Like it's going to be a very, very tough place to be. But if you have the ability to be a loner when it's time to be a loner and to be there for people and to have people and accept that people will be there for you when you need some help. And we, there are always going to be times where some of us will need help. And if we don't worry about, you know, this, the negative stigma attached to seeking help, or even if you don't worry about the negative stigma of offering help, then we can sort of prevail right like on 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 that set of circumstances together um and and it's it, it it may sound corny but that was the philosophy in my affiliates and we achieved that to the t like you, you know you, our people were extremely close and um extremely close and extremely dedicated to each other no different than you would be in a special operation unit yeah yeah and i think that's what i've seen over and over again i've seen definitely in in my gym is to me a cohesive CrossFit gym mirrors a cohesive, you know, fire station or or you know SWAT team or whatever it is. If if you think individually, like you said, then that's going to be a very lonely place. But if you understand you're part of something much bigger, whether it's you know cheering someone on at the end in in a CrossFit workout or whether it's being part of a team on the fire ground, there is so much power to that. And I think that principle in itself is what we're missing at the moment. We're allowing people to tell a false narrative of division, of classification, instead of understanding, for example, in a, fire, in a, in a CrossFit gym, that it doesn't matter what color, creed, race you are, you're all there to do the same workout, or you're all there to, to, to jump on the same fire engine, or, you know, get in the Bearcat, whatever it is. So I think that the the CrossFit community element is is not understood as much as people need to think, but it's not about lifting, wearing tall socks and puking a lot. <laughs> it's about working out with a bunch of like-minded people of all backgrounds and suffering together. Yeah, no, it is. And I mean, and, and, and there is no denying of the benefit of putting people to achieve a common mission through adversity. Like the benefits are endless. And if we correlate this to the tactical world or if we correlate this to the first respond, the first responder world, there's also another element that people forget. And often it's the high stress operating environment. Right. So there is a direct correlation between performance under stress and uh, during a timed event and critical incident response. And and people think that, you know, those are completely at odds or one is way worse than the other. But in fact, on you know, human psychology is, and, and re the research is clear that putting an athlete uh, to conduct a task, so essentially giving him a mission and to do so under time while, while uh, being sort of watched by their peers and doing it with their peers in a semi-competitive environment actually creates a, 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 an amount of stress that's, that is very close um, to the stress 
that is experienced on critical incidents. And what we are doing now is the body doesn't really make a difference between physical stress and mental stress. So what you are actually doing is you're creating a level of stress inoculation. But what needs to happen and 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 that's what's critical is how that person comes to be a full uh, and full-fledged CrossFit athlete where they have the tools required to stay out of the injury range and and into the uncomfortable range, right? And this is where the contention is. You know, people look at CrossFit and, and, and there's a variety of opinions and everybody have opinion on everything. Most people have never tried it. And a lot of people that have tried CrossFit before that didn't like it or um, still have not experienced the full spectrum of it because it's constantly varied functional movement performed at high intensity you can't go to a day or two and say okay i tried crossfit i know what it is there is a variety of different modalities and so unless you've been there for a few months you you are not truly understanding also there is a major there's a major learning curve to this because there are modalities that most humans have never tapped into and so the key is and everybody talks about this we you have to leave your ego at the door well that is very difficult to do it just is very difficult to do. If you take somebody that's half in shape that wants to try CrossFit and you bring them into CrossFit gym and they see everybody go faster than they are and lift more than they are, it's really hard for a competitive person, even if they are not competing directly against the other people, to expect more of themselves, but they're just not there in space and time. And they need to take the time to learn. They need to take the time to to be in a reputable box and learn from a reputable coach and have some some clean technique before you know the 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 lifts are getting heavier and 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 there is a major um there's a major investment to be made there in taking the time to learn it properly and then to move into reaping endless benefits um you know from from the from the system and i mean we're talking about crossfit and maybe we've lost half of your listeners you know because sometimes <laughs> sometimes sometimes you, you say crossfit and people like i am not a die hard like it's crossfit or nothing you know type deal again uh measured approach but i do believe that high intensity functional movements performed at high intensity under a time constraint and ideally with peers is a very good system if call it whatever you want make it whatever you want but the intensity has to be there and if it and if it isn't, you are cheating yourself potential results. Yeah. With with that, there's also and you know my gyms and my affiliates always had a strength bias because that's a key component of 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 tactical athletes having the ability having the ability to generate force and do so um, on short notice type deal. So uh, you know this the the. My gyms have always been really strength biased. So there's always been strongman in there. Uh, modality, we you know we tap into strongman modality. We tap into powerlifting modality with some of the west west side barbell programming, all these other things. And we've created some monsters, like really. <laughs> and when I say monsters, I mean athletes that can perform in a wide range and, and a broad spectrum of of physical endeavors at levels at which you wouldn't expect them to be. Yeah, generally, if you have a 600 pound deadlift, you don't have a sub 40 minute 10k right but we've and we have seen it in the crossfit world where athletes have reached you know incredible uh, incredible sort of levels in a variety of different uh, modalities which to some extent are conflicting at time but it is you know um there's still room for in my in my opinion there's still room where specialist training will be needed so 
We can talk about general physical preparedness, CrossFit being great for that. But if I was to train, for example, if I was on a tactical team and I was to train the breachers, the breachers who carry, you know, heavy loads and 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 have to have a lot of power, um, then I'd be training them potentially a little bit different than I would say a rural surveillance team or sniper observer teams where they now need more long range operation and they have they need to be able to carry a pack and rock march and do this and do that. So so you, there are still ways to adapt to training to the specialties. But for law enforcement in general, in terms of patrol duties, I, I do believe that it is a, a, an excellent system. Yeah, no question. Yeah. And you touched on strongman, too. And that's something that I've talked about as well. Mine's kind of a combination of the two. I think CrossFit is such a great um, modality for you know overall strength and conditioning, and like we said, putting yourself in a, n- a nasty place mentally. But then the strongman is a great complement to that because now you've got weight over distance, push, pull, carry, drag, which is very pertinent for our profession. So when you combine the two, I mean, it's not. Well, I'm not a CrossFit you know, rah, rah, rah guy at all. People think that, you know, I'm a gym rat. It's the opposite. I go because it's an hour. Then I can leave and go do something else. But with combining that with with uh, Strongman, as you were saying, that's a great, great combination. Now you've got dead weight, you know, uh, real world um, strength movements rather than barbell. But then you've also got the other element from the Metcon side too. Yeah, no, it's, it's, um, yeah, it, you're absolutely right. And, uh, and, uh, yeah, if, if, you know, if I was to do it all over again, I wouldn't change a thing. And, and interestingly enough, we have a, pre, a pretty progressive, um, training program at the academy here in, in Saskatchewan where it's now a part of the curriculum. So yeah, they do a whole bunch of things, but before it was, um, uh, you know, a circuit training. Now it's legitimately, you know, um, crossfit like whether they call it this or not i i don't know but i was there watching them and and <laughs> it is what it is you know? <laughs> all right well one more one more question before we transition to some closing questions um now we're on the strength and conditioning element obviously you know you're saying now the entry point they're they're taking it very seriously do you have annual standards annual fitness testing because that's a, a bone of contention in a lot of departments i mean to me again we were talking about common sense earlier why the hell would you not in a profession where lives are at stake? What is um, uh, you know your employer's perspective on on annual testing and maintaining that strength and conditioning level? Well, I, I would say that for specialty sections, um, yes, uh, there is a physical ability test uh, for the emergency response team. There is for the the dog handlers. Um, maybe I'm bike patrol maybe or anyway uh, some specific functions i mean i'm evidently i'm gonna forget some here because i'm you know uh, i'm not familiar with all of them but uh but those specialty sections absolutely and it's you know has to be done it has to be done every year and uh and there's there's added i would say you know for for ERT, for example like yeah you have your physical once a year but uh, good luck keeping up with the team because you know <laughs> through your week of training every three weeks you are going to be you know hiking pulling pushing rowing like whatever the case may be you know rock marching and, and doing all this stuff so you're gonna obviously by default have all these other benchmarks which are if you start slacking then the team will be it'll be evident you will be exposed and you cannot have that and the team will not have that so you have a built-in sort of you know, redundancy there where you have your actual annual, which is imposed by the organization. And then you have, you know, the weekly, 
the weekly endeavors which you can't fall behind on so 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 by default you are going to stay where you need to be the the issue that we have right now is there isn't uh, we we in theory have a physical ability test for patrol and for uh, operational members in general and it isn't mandatory now a lot of members are taking it willingly and a lot of members are are preparing and we see it more and more we see we see members you know despite their heavy workload and despite being out there and 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 being beat on um they they will put the time in and they will go out and and do the physical testing uh some every year some every three years when when they do their uh, mandatory recertification on a variety of different options like there's a there's a mandatory th- every three years you have to go in and 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 do like a a complete sort of first aid and it goes into you know police defensive tactics and the list goes on and on it's basically a three-year like giant refresher which is actually very solid um and and the instructors there are, are, are really good now at what they do they've been there for many years and and perfecting their craft but uh aside from that there is no real mandatory it's not mandatory testing i would say we we had issues in the past where the doctors that were assigned to the force which they're not sports meds right they're general practitioners and they would actually provide people with excuses as to why they shouldn't be running oh you know my throat's a little sore oh well we'll write you off you know like and 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 it's just as an organization we can't have that so if you have sports med that understand that these people needs and need to be able to perform, then they're not going to get written off for all kinds of stupid reasons, right? Um, but we didn't have that. So the answer is if you are on patrol right now and you are not running your physical test, nothing happens. It just it just doesn't. So so you're deemed to be expired, but there is no consequences to that. And what is your philosophy on that? I mean, are you as an organization working towards making that actually um you know enforceable because i mean to me if you've got swat team members there should be no difference between let's say for example in the fire service you know the um the squad members and the regular firefighters we're all still out there doing the same job yours just might look a little bit more um militarized you know but each of us could get into the same kind of situation so when i hear that a lot in law enforcement to me that seems again an area that i think we need to we need to improve upon where every single person that gets to carry a firearm that lives are at stake should be held at a certain physical standard every year yeah so i'm i'm in agreement with you uh, on that no question my problem and it's not a problem but i i the solution, rather, or what I propose, is in line with what I spoke about earlier in, a, in a having a training week every three weeks, right? Because now what you are doing is you are you're running your physical in a way that is conducive to, say, the last training block of the year is your physical testing, period. It just is what it is. There's no questions. You're providing the time. You're providing the equipment. You're providing the coaching. They don't have to worry about a thing. Every three weeks, they get their phys- their PT as a group, as a collective. They, they get better together. They get more confident. And, and by the time the end of the year comes around, out you go and run your qualifications as a, as a rule of thumb. And that's a wrap. The issue that we have is, is there's other organizational issues that are compounding the issues the members are already having on the streets. And so now for us to make something like that mandatory in the midst of 
um, you know, a lot of other shortcomings um, is just adding fuel to the fire. So you don't know this about our organizations, but we just uh, recently obtained the right to unionize after, you know, almost 150 years without really? a union. Yeah. And so, and so finally, uh, it, it, there is going to be a collective agreement in place and it, it, you know, it will be a while before it's, it's, it's all in there and, and there will be some growing pains because the people that are actually working um, to put this collective agreement together are actually have an unprecedented, unprecedented task, right? Because it's never been done. And the, the sort of the, the spectrum and the diversity in this outfit is absolutely asinine. So for, for them to even begin to scratch the surface of what this collective agreement is going to look like, um, you know, I am glad they're taking it on, but I am also glad I'm not in it because it's going to be one of the biggest endeavor by any union in the in Canadian history by bar none. So, but with that, now the union will have the collective agreement in place when the collective agreement, hopefully, you know, physical fitness is going to be a part of it. Hopefully training is going to be a part of it. And hopefully we bridge some sort of gap. Maybe it's not a week every three weeks, but maybe it's something else that's you know, the second best thing, you know, type deal. And then as part of that, would there be an expectation of the members being able to conduct a physical fitness test as part of their regular duties? I think it will get there. I just think that for us to turn around right now and say, okay, everybody has to run it when they're running short on the road, they're constantly going call to call to call. They have zero time to, to train, uh, you know, on, or if they do, they have to do it on their own time as an organizationally, it's not the best practice, but as an individual human, I never relied on anybody to take care of myself, right? I didn't. So I can speak for myself when I say I made a point of making sure that I was good to go for my physicals every year when I was on patrol and I did them and I sought them. If I had to drive two hours to go do them, I did. Um, and, and it was simply, I am good to go, good to go, good to go, training, getting ready, you know, and, and, and I owe it to myself and to others to, 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 to maintain the standard. But that was, it's easy for me to say, bearing in mind that my goal was to go to a tactical unit. So I'm not pretending to be anything that I'm not, but I had an ultimate goal to go to a tactical unit. So it may have helped me stay focused, right? But deflection does not work. It, it just doesn't. So, so it's, it's imperative that members go out there and work harder. And if you work hard, work harder, you know, uh, in terms of getting yourself prepared. And, um, and if you need some help, seek it, you know, because a, a lot of it has to do with just not knowing what to do exactly. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And then even your, your example, I think that's it is, is figuring out a timeline. So you can't just drop it right on everyone's lap and be like, all right, if you don't pass, you're out of here. But there has to be a kind of, you know, weaning process where like, all right, the, the first time in a year from now, you get to take it. It's not punitive. The next year, you know, it, it'll be, you're going to go to days until, you know, you, you, you've reached that level. So yeah, I mean, th there's extremely unfair just to slam it on someone, but at the same time, a, a line has to be drawn in the, in the sand by every department to say, all right, we are going to implement this in stages, but the last stage in X amount of years is going to be, you have to meet this every year. Yeah, no, I agree. Ultimately, there is no, there is no negotiation with the critical incidents that we are going to face, right? So we can soften the blow, we can put cushions around it, and we can sugarcoat everything. 
But ultimately, that's a disservice to the people that we asked to protect and serve. And 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 it's ultimately their lives, the lives of their loved ones, the life of the civilians. I mean, it's there is a lot in the balance. And whether or not we get complete buy-in from them is pretty irrelevant. It it has to happen. The question is, is how do we do it and how do we make that happen reasonably? Absolutely. Well, I think that's a good place to transition to some closing questions. We hit so many, so many areas. We could talk for another six hours, I'm sure, <laughs> but we'll have to do another, another interview down the road. Um, so getting to the first closing question, is there a book that you love to recommend? It can be related to what we've discussed today or something completely different. Hmm. There's a lot of books. It, it depends what we are talking about, right? Like, and, 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 I hate to, again, overcomplicate the answer, but it's an oversimplification to say one book because, you know, perhaps um, for somebody that's looking to go in law enforcement and understanding sort of the, the, some of the critical aspects of law enforcement and, 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 and help with building some mental resilience, perhaps on combat is from, you know, uh, Lieutenant um, Colonel Dave Grossman might be the book that I would pick. If we're looking from a leadership uh, standpoint, then, you know, perhaps I'm going to look at Jocko and extreme ownership or, or, you know, survival tactics or whatever his last book or his last book was, by the way, Jocko, I woke up at 429 this morning. So, (laughs) (laughs) but, um, but if I, if I'm to look at, um, and then I, I, I always tell people like, get out of your comfort zone, like read Iliad, you know, read Greek novels, like read things that take you out of your comfort zone. And one of the things that I used to do all the time uh, is read, you know, tactically inclined books. You know, um, it was account of a Navy SEAL. It was leadership. It was, you know, weapons tactics. It was and, it, and it's great. And it's, you know, and it's it enriches a, a certain aspect of your of your personality and in line with the things that you are passionate about, but also you know, reading about flowers and bees and, 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 and time and temperature on other planets and, and having a general understanding. It just, it just broadens your horizon. And, and that in itself gives you more tools while communicating. Right. And, 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 and it just, it's critical that, that, you know, what's the saying if um, a society that separates a scholar from his warriors will have his thinking done by cowards and his fighting done by fools. Well, that's an accurate statement. Like it, it, it's absolutely critical that we develop the brain along with the rest of this stuff and in and, 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 and a broad range of, uh, of different areas. So, um, yeah, you know, I would say um, probably one of my best of all times in terms of just sheer grit and determination and very special set of circumstances I would say fearless, uh, the Adam Brown story. Brilliant. And, uh, yeah, I think, I think for now, like I, I've, I've read lots of books, I guess this year, but, um, none come to mind like, like fearless. I mean, I really, really enjoyed, I really enjoyed that. Like, uh, you know, for him to go from a, from a crack addict to the incredible warrior he was, uh, is just absolutely incredible, but. Yeah, I've got that on my bookshelf. I'm uh, now I'm done writing a book. I've got time to start reading again. So that's one of the ones that's <laughs> up next. <laughs> 
All right, but some great. I agree with you 100% as well. Like my my bookshelf is quite diverse, and I think that's an important thing when it comes to retirement and transitioning out. If you've just identified yourself as a policeman, as a fireman, and even even your reading, even everything your you know your your films are all related to your profession, then you're going to have a shock when you transition out. You need to broaden your horizons, not only to remind yourself of the human being you are, but also, like you said, in conversations, some random beekeeping book might be the thing that creates de-escalation with, with someone that you just went on a call with. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and, and to, to tie right into what you, what you just said, if, if policing or your first responder career defines you, we, I have some really bad news. Because there is a variety of different things that can come into your career and derail that, derail that, that you know that that endeavor and and lead you into some really dark path and having hobbies and having friends that are outside of this and having, uh, you know, general knowledge of other things is really is critical to keep you grounded that the world doesn't revolve around the one percent of you know. Because that's what you're seeing as a, as a first responder. You're seeing one percent of the of people's reality, and that one percent is a hundred percent negative. So now you're in a hundred percent negative space, when really it's only one percent of the rest. So it is critical and imperative that you don't let first your first responder role define you, because if it does and you can no longer do it, you are in a world of hurt. And we see it with members that have been on for thirty or forty years, and they will not retire. And they, and you know why they will not retire because they are, their perception of themselves is that they are nothing without their badge, which is absolutely not the case. But most of them will retire and, and, and pass away within a year. You know, there is huge consequences to that all along your life, your lifetime. And, um, being dedicated, it has nothing to do with dedication. It has everything to do with separating the two, right? Absolutely. That's exactly. And I think that, you know, when, when you've separated the two, it makes you a better responder as well. It really does. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. All right. Well, then same kind of question. Is there a movie that you love and or a documentary? So I'm, I'm going to probably have like all kinds of eyes roll because like, well, first of all, my best movie of all time is Gladiator. I just, I just, I just have a thing for Gladiator. I love that movie. Um, my, I would say that my second is probably Act of Valor. And as cheesy as it is, and, and you know, I mean, obviously the, the hands and feet uh, stuff, you know, was a little bit far-fetched, but the guys were moving well because they were, they were, they were uh, actual Navy SEALs and everything. I just, I love that movie. I, re I really did. Um, and having operators uh, do it uh, made it that much better, in my opinion. I really like Black Hawk Down, too. Um, and I mean, again, I, you know, and I can go in other movie styles. I mean, those are not everything, but, uh, yeah, I would say if I had to pick, if I had to, if I was sent on an Island and I was, you know, forced to stay there forever and ever, I would take gladiator with me. Brilliant. Now some great films. Yeah, it, it was, yeah. it was jarring though, having real seals. Cause then you notice the acting, but then because yeah. that's a minimal amount, obviously, like you said, the action scenes were incredibly believable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, and I always, I always laugh when people say to me like, "Oh my God, the acting in that movie!" And I'm like, "Dude, I, I, you know, I couldn't care less if they didn't speak and this was all subtitled. Like, I just was wanting him to, you know, move, shoot, and communicate, right?" Yeah, <laughs> and that's probably how real seals are. We just so used to the yeah. Hollywood version of them 
Like, <laughs> where's the cheesy one-liners? There, there's none. <laughs> Most of the things okay. they say to each other, you can't even have in this movie. Although, although the chief there that was doing the interview on the boat, like that man, I believe was a was a seal as well. Did a fantastic job. He was absolutely incredible in that role. Yeah, well, you got something. Captain Dale Dye was on the show, and he's you know he's mm -hmm. an amazing actor. So. All right. Well, then next question. Is there a person you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the military, first responders and associated professions of the world? Hmm. Very good question. Yeah. You know, I, I could think of one person. I would um, I would say, yeah, yeah, I think I think it'd be I think it'd be, it'd be, it'd be interested. But I would say you guys have a, liter a literal and he's, he's going to hate me for this, but you have a superhero in, in AJ D'Andrea. Um, you know, AJ, um, has a, has a company called Centurion, I believe, um, a tactical company, but he's a, he's a commander as well. He's a, he was a SWAT team member for many, many years, went to Columbine and, and Platt High School and some of the hardest uh, calls to be on. Um, he is a, an, an amazing, an amazing man, an amazing leader and an amazing speaker. And, um, and I think the world would benefit uh, definitely benefit from AJ's knowledge as we have. And he's been an instructor with the National Tactical Officer Association for a number of years. He's run a number of our team leaders courses. Uh, when I was on the team, um, he put me through my team leaders course and uh, just a fantastic, fantastic dude. Uh, superhero, really. Uh, you know, he, he won't tell you this, but but that's the case. Brilliant. Is this someone you'd be able to connect me with? Oh, 100%. Yeah, Excellent. I could. Excellent. Yeah, he sounds incredible. And even just the Columbine story itself is, you know, one that's rarely heard from the tactical side. Yeah, if you if you want to do a little bit more research, you can look at the I Love You Guys. Um, I believe it's the I Love, I Love You Guys Foundation. Uh, one of the casualty, unfortunately, of the Platts High School and, and AJ was ent entrically uh, or uh, rather um, very involved with the dad of, of, of that little girl. And um, and um, and and you can definitely sort of find out more about the incredible stories but uh but yeah amazing brilliant i will thank you so much all right the last question before we make sure everyone knows where to find you um uh what do you do to decompress i train <laughs> <laughs> i train more i i you know when i go on vacation they're training vacations i will go to a muay thai camp somewhere in thailand and i will i just came back from vacation i went to uh a bit of an island where a friend of mine owns a, a, a CrossFit gym, and then another uh, another um, awesome dude owns a, um, a, B, a BJJ club. So I, I went, you know, CrossFit in the morning, BJJ, and you know, on a rotation and daily type deal. <laughs> and that's otherwise, I'll go to Maui and I'll go to you know a box there, and I'll go to you know Christian Grandy BJJ, or I'll go to a Carlson Gracie place or, or whatever. I, I I just I just love to train. This is what I love to do. Um, and, and for me, it's my happy place if I don't have to work and it doesn't interfere with my training. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah, I can relate. I mean, absolutely. And that's, again, that's what's so beautiful about jujitsu, I think, and about CrossFit as well, is that you can, you can show up in a completely different country and you understand the language. And as long as you're respectful, you'll be received by that community that you just walked into. Yeah, it's amazing. I would say BJJ over CrossFit as far as as far as I, you know, if I have to prioritize something on a trip, I will generally go like because I I just if I go two, three days without without Jiu Jitsu, I just get super squirrely. So I, I have to I have to excuse me, I have to be on the mats 
and I have to put my gi on and I have to mix it up. Otherwise, you know, things go weird. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So then if people want to reach out to you, where are the best places to find you online? I guess my Instagram is probably the best is, um, I don't even know if I'll get it right, but it's at, at Slav, S-S-L-A-V-C-C-M-D-R. So it's S-L-A-V-C-C-M-D-R, Slav Cobra Commander. And I'm sure, I, I don't know, I'm sure when the episode goes live, you can just link me to it. And if people want to, want to come and check out my, uh, my Instagram, they're welcome to, if they have some questions, they're welcome to send them my way. Um, I'm, I'm, I've been very open with this and, and please, please bear with me if I don't, if I don't respond right away, I, I have, uh, quite a bit on my plate, but I definitely will respond to, uh, to whoever sends me something. Brilliant. Yeah. I'll put the link on uh, the webpage for this episode. So it'll be at jamesgearing.com under the podcast tab. Well, Seb, I just want to say thank you again. We scratched the surface. I knew this was going to be the case. I mean, we chatted for an hour and a half with a really shitty internet connection a couple of days ago and still made it work. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I really appreciate you leading from the front and being, you know, a kind of role model for our professions. Um, and then telling your story. And, and I know that there's so much more to glean from you. And I'd love to do another episode down the road. But thank you so much for being so generous with your time today. Yeah, thank you very much for what you're doing. And thank you very much for having me. It was uh, an honor to be on. I'm very, very stoked.